Hello my friends, welcome back to Garda Goes Geek. On today's episode, in a follow-up to one I did a couple of years ago where I looked at the entire Star Trek franchise, I want to focus today on my favourite Star Trek series of them all, um, which I did speak about quite a lot in the previous episode, but I want to delve more on this episode on what it did specifically that makes it stand so far apart from the rest of the franchise. And that show is Star Trek Deep Space Nine, a show that to me redefined quite a lot of science fiction and redefined Star Trek as a whole, as well as quite clearly being an, uh, you know, impactful show on a lot of modern television. Like, there's a lot I see in modern television that seems to have, if not been directly inspired by Deep Space Nine, definitely shares a lot in common with it. So, hopefully you'll join me as I explain why Deep Space Nine is so good and how it reinvented Star Trek. This episode, like many others, was one that was originally planned for 2023 and was specifically planned to align with a major franchise anniversary and or something else that would serve as a talking point for the contents of this episode. However, like many other episodes, it was being released or recorded during the Writers Guild of America and SAG-AFTRA strikes against the American Motion Picture Association. As a result, this episode and many others have been held back because the clarification regarding content creation from SAG-AFTRA and the WGA um, specified that review content was allowed, including critical appraisal and or analysis of shows and films, however not discussion, interview, comedic conversation, watch-along, rewatch, or reaction content. As I felt that this stipulation was something that would prevent me from discussing some of the topics that I wish to in the way that I wish to, even if the works I was discussing were not related to films that were in active development or, or were previous films, I did not want to breach the strikes as I fully support the WGA and SAG-AFTRA in their strikes, as well as anyone else who decides to strike. If there is a strike, I am always on the side of the union striking, never on the side of the big corporate entities behind it. As a result, this episode has been held back. It is being released for you now that the strikes are over. I hope you will enjoy this content. Um, I've worked very hard on it, despite everything else. Please enjoy. So a couple of years ago now, for the 55th anniversary of Star Trek, I decided to do a full, like, retrospective sort of franchise overview type thing, looking at all of Star Trek as a franchise, like what it is. Because Star Trek is one of those things that I think... It is part of pop culture. Everyone is kind of aware of Star Trek. 
they have an idea of what Star Trek is. You know, there's the Enterprise, there's the Klingons, you picture either sort of Kirk and the brightly coloured uniforms, or you pick, um, you know, Picard and Data and more sort of philosophical discussions, um, you know, and carpet on the ceiling and all these other silly things. You know, Star Trek was in syndication for a long, long time. And I know, uh, as I've said before, television doesn't quite work the same way anymore as it used to. You know, you don't tend to have these repeat syndicated shows, which means that, you know, everyone in the house kind of has an idea of what these things are. But it's like, you know, with with the fact that Star Trek is back on television, with the fact there's also the Orville, which is um, quite popular as well, you know, people are aware of Star Trek. You know, Star Trek is something that's been constantly joked about in everything from uh, Simpsons, Futurama, Family Guy, you know, Saturday Night Live. It's it's constantly in the zeitgeist. It's people know what it is and they have an idea of what Star Trek is, which I think is the most important thing. You know, people have an idea of what Star Trek is, what the characters are like, what the Federation is like, what the Klingons are like, what the ship is like. And a lot of that still holds true today, even with the the modern films and obviously shows like Strange New Worlds sort of blowing up the airwaves. You know, people know what to expect from Star Trek. But back in the mid-90s, um, I think the idea of what Star Trek was got quite roundly turned on its head with the introduction of the first show that came after the death of Gene Roddenberry. And that show was Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Now, obviously, when I spoke about Star Trek before, I spoke quite a bit about Deep Space Nine and just how brilliant I think it is. You know, it's my favourite of the Star Trek shows. Um, and obviously, you know, going back there, I, I kind of gushed about it a, li- a bit. There was a, a lot of episodes that I recommended were episodes from that show. Um, a lot of the characters that I spoke about were characters from that show. You know, it is so good. But the reason it is so good and the reason it has stuck with me um, as the best of the Star Trek shows is also the reason why at the time it was not particularly beloved. You know, this was a Star Trek show that did not feel like a Star Trek show. It wasn't about a ship boldly going into deep space to encounter a new adventure every week. This was a story set on a space station with the same characters and the same events coming back. Lots and lots of recurring cast members and plot lines. Which meant if you missed chunks of episodes, characters could be drastically different from the last time you saw them. You know, and that happened to me when I was watching it um, originally, because um, Deep Space Nine was kind of being aired on the BBC, um, sort of not long after it was being aired in America um, for the first time. And in fact, some of the the two-parter episodes um, that aired in America actually over, aired over here as like feature-length specials. They'd, they'd air for like the full 90 minutes uninterrupted, and they were... Oh, so much fun to watch. So much fun to watch. 
And yeah, like I said, this kind of it boldly went, but not in the way that Star Trek fans were used to. This boldly went in a way of redefining what the idea of Star Trek was. You know, at the time, Star Trek The Next Generation was the pinnacle of Star Trek. I think Star Trek The Next Generation had just wrapped Series 5 and was just about to start Series 6. Just started Season 6 when um, Deep Space Nine began. Deep Space Nine sort of began halfway through the season. Um, So, you know, most seasons, like I said, most television seasons start in the fall and run through to the spring. Um, which is what TNG did. Deep Space Nine started in the uh, the winter um, after the new year and ran from there until sort of, I think, early summer for, this, for its first season. The second season and onwards were kind of aired more in line with TNG. Now, Star Trek The Next Generation is the series with Patrick Stewart as John Luke Picard, um, Jonathan Frakes as First Officer Commander Riker, Brent Spiner as uh, Commander Data, the android who wishes to be human, uh, Michael Dorn as Worf, uh, LeVar Burton as George LaForge, the chief engineer, but who was originally the blind pilot of the ship, um, and then obviously Marina Sirtis as the empathic Deanna Troy, and uh, who was the ship's counsellor, and Gates McFadden as Dr. Beverly Crusher. It was a small cast focused on those those main seven characters. Um, it also featured in a recurring role, although she's not in as many episodes as I think a lot of people remember her being. Um, but obviously it was kind of waylaid by the fact that she was a big name whenever she did appear. And she was in a lot of the cast photos is Whoopi Goldberg as Guinan, the bartender. Now, that show was set on the Enterprise D. The Enterprise D was the fifth starship to bear the name. It was the flagship of the Federation. It was one of their most important ships um, and would obviously be sent on diplomatic events. It would be exploring the frontier. It would be involved in um, major political events. You know, sent to deal with the the Klingons, who by this point was Starfleet's allies, and the Romulans, um, the Romulan Star Empire, who had been hidden away for several decades shortly before the series started, and were sort of set up to be the main antagonists. Um, but they would also encounter several new antagonists. Um, for example, the large-eared Ferengi, um, who were implied to be cannibals, um, but you know, because of their kind of goofy appearance, were not taken seriously by fans. And then, of course, there was the much more successful introduction of the Borg, um, a race of cyborgs who assimilate people to become them. And obviously in one of the biggest, um, most dramatic episodes and a hugely dramatic cliffhanger, uh, assimilated John luc Picard as Locutus of Borg at the end of Series 3. Um, leading to Riker ordering the the Enterprise fire on the Borg ship that was carrying him. Very dramatic. 
And then, of course, they, you know, as the show went on, they gradually introduced more and more characters. They, you know, more and more aliens. They started to introduce supporting characters, developed the supporting character of Chief O'Brien, a transporter chief played by Cole Meany. Um, They gave him a family, you know, a wife, Keiko uh, Ishikawa. Um, They they got engaged, they got married. Um, They then had a daughter, Molly, who Worf ended up um, acting as midwife for, which was quite funny it was in one of the the big sort of disaster episodes in fact the episode is actually called disaster um you know wolf sort of trapped in the bar with her and she goes into labor and there's no power and there's no medical staff so wolf has to uh, lead the charge on that one it's quite funny um it was also the introduction of the bajoran um flight officer um rolaren um the bajorans were revealed to be a race that had was had recently been subjugated by a empire of um lizard-like aliens called the Cardassians. <laughs> oh, excuse me, sorry. The Cardassians um were quite fascistic in a lot of ways. Um they had been at war with the Federation in the past. Um Chief O'Brien was not a fan of those. He'd been one of the soldiers on the front lines of that war. Um, and, you know, they described uh, a particular incident at a colony of Setlik 3 as, you know, a a sort of border skirmish. The Federation referred to it as a massacre, um, to give you an idea of sort of how callous they can be. That was profiled quite well in an episode of uh, The Next Generation called The Wounded, um, which is very, very good. Now, Deep Space Nine began with the background of all that. You know, this this introduction to the universe, the 24th century of Star Trek, um, and the backstory of all of these characters that we'd met on the Enterprise and all of the, you know, the villains that they had also encountered. And off of the back of the two-parter chain of command in season six, Deep Space Nine began. Um, The two-parter chain of command features a change in circumstances for the Cardassians, almost leads to a war between the uh, Cardassians and the Federation. And the actual episode itself is very, very well done, part uh, part one features uh, Picard going on a mission um, behind the Cardassian lines where he is captured. And the second episode um, features Patrick Stewart and uh, as Picard and David Warner as his captor, Golma Dredd, a Cardassian um, officer, both of whom give absolute powerhouse performances. And Patrick Stewart is obviously a ambassador for Amnesty International. Um, he used this episode as a way of highlighting um, the sort of things that, um, you know, political prisoners go through. Um, you know, Picard, we see Picard tortured and broken and humiliated and sort of de- denied personage by Golmadred. It's elements of it are harrowing to watch. And the performance of the two leads is absolutely incredible um 
so yeah, it's one of the most politically aware stories I think Star Trek has ever done. Don't let anyone ever tell you that Star Trek is not woke. Um, you know, that's a has, has, has never been woke until recently, because that's one of the biggest complaints about the modern Star Trek is that, oh, Star Trek's gone all woke. Um, basically, what they mean by woke is that it now features, you know, gay people and black people and occasionally trans people um, in, you know, major roles. Because, you know, Star Trek's never done that before. Yeah. Yeah, I realise I go on about politics quite a bit. Obviously, I'm I'm very leftist. And like I've said, I'm also queer. Um, so, you know, I am one of those people where my identity is woke because I am not straight. <laughs> so that's irritating to hear people describe things as woke just because it doesn't prevent a, a, a cisgender heteronormativity. But yes... That's a discussion for a different day. But it is also something somewhat relevant to Deep Space Nine because Deep Space Nine also introduced a black captain. In fact, not even a captain. He's a commander for the first few seasons. But I'll get to that in a minute. So yeah, this was the backstory that Star Trek Deep Space Nine was working with. These episodes were popular. And like I said, Star Trek The Next Generation was in syndication. It was in the popular zeitgeist people were aware of star trek the next generation families could sit down and be aware of who these characters were and at the same time as this was happening in the late uh, throughout the 80s and into the early 90s we'd also had star trek original series movies featuring the reunited original cast of william shatner deforest kelly leonard nimoy james Doohan, nichelle nichols um, Walter Koenig, George Takei, coming together as their core cast of, um, you know, Kirk, Bones, Spock, Uhura, uh, Chekhov, Sulu and Scotty, all coming back onto the big screen with a brand new Enterprise. Yes, they were older and past their prime, but that was also part of the fun, showing that these these older characters, like, they, they did things with that storyline. Like, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, which came out in the early 80s actually addresses the fact that Kirk is older as a core part of its narrative you know it's a real maturing storyline for Kirk who was you know the action hero of Star Trek back in the 60s you know times have moved on the actors have moved on the characters have moved on so as a result you know these movies were popular don't get me wrong they were they were not huge successes but something like star trek for the voyage home came out in 1986 the year of the the challenger disaster because it was actually dedicated to um the memory of the the astronauts who lost their lives in the challenger explosion and it went on to become one of the best performing films that year you know as well as being critically and commercially one of the most successful star trek films for a long time, you know, Star Trek was popular. This was a show that had been cancelled originally in the 60s. And when it first reappeared in the the late 80s with Star Trek The Next Generation, yeah, people had accepted the films with the original cast, but they were a bit dubious about The Next Generation. But The Next Generation won people over with good storytelling, good acting. And, you know... 
The problem was with it that it was very episodic, just like the original series was. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. There were some ongoing storylines. There was some ongoing character development. But for a lot of the time, the Enterprise would arrive at a planet or, you know, come across a new situation, get involved. Um, the story would be told through the perspective of one or or more of the characters. There might be a subplot or two with some of the other characters. But the story would be told and explored, and usually there'd be some kind of allegory or message behind everything. Um, you know, whether it's something as simple as drugs are bad, or whether it's something um, a bit more nuanced that, you know, maybe people's identity should be up to them. Um, you know, all these sorts of things. Um, or, you know, maybe it's the choices that you make in your life that define you for whether they were good or bad. And, you know, that captured people's attention and won them over, and Star Trek became popular. And like I said, you could have, because this was in syndication, you could have whole families uh, with multiple generations in, you know, grandparents, parents, and children, who all knew what Star Trek was, and all had their own idea of what Star Trek was as well. Deep Space Nine came along, and I really think it upended all of that. Not immediately. It was a slow burn. But Star Trek Deep Space Nine redefined what Star Trek is. And I think this is why it still holds up as perhaps the strongest of the Star Trek shows. Because like I said, you know, the Enterprise would warp in, solve a problem, warp off. And, you know, it would never be mentioned again most of the time. A few exceptions. But most of the time... Never be mentioned again. Deep Space Nine was a station, space station, a static location. Storylines came back, characters came back, things continued to develop. And the result is a show that, while it may have come out in the mid 90s, feels very, very modern. So, yeah, I'm going to take you through. Um, Season by season, kind of explain what Star Trek seemed to do, uh, what Deep Space Nine did that kind of redefined everything. Um, if you want uh, some more information on, um, you know, the episodes that I described for TNG that work as a good uh, backbone for Deep Space Nine, if you want to watch Deep Space Nine but you've not seen The Next Generation, um, I might perhaps put that up on my Discord. Um, I think it's a very, very good list. Um because there's not really many episodes you kind of really need to watch. Uh, I've mentioned a couple of them, like The Wounded and Chain of Command, but there's a few others which are, are worth a watch as well, to just kind of give you an idea of the universe. But yeah, let's discuss Deep Space Nine. So, Star Trek Deep Space Nine has, I think, perhaps the finest pilot um, for, a Star Trek, uh, for a Star Trek series. Now... The original series struggled because it had multiple pilots, because like the first pilot, the cage wasn't picked up, and then the second one, where no man has gone before, wasn't actually the first episode of the original series. Um, so the first actual aired episode, I think, was The Man Trap, which is, is decent, but it's it's very much a, a, a an episode sort of showing what Star Trek is going to become. 
Star Trek The Next Generation, its pilot episode was the feature-length Encounter at Farpoint. Encounter at Farpoint was originally designed as an hour-long episode before being expanded to the feature-length episode. Now, the expansion to the feature-length episode is where they added in the character of Q, played by John DeLancey, who became one of the more interesting elements of that first episode. Like, the pilot episode is not great, um, but Q is one of the better things in it, and obviously one of the most iconic things in Star Trek The Next Generation. Emissary, however, was always planned to be a feature-length episode, which meant it had enough room to work with. And what they decided to do was introduce a lot of the mythology of the series here up front and i think it works really well now it is a character focused piece like and it's explicitly focused on the character of commander cisco now ben cisco we learn was at the battle of wolf 359 in the best of both worlds which means he was a starfleet officer on one of the ships that was destroyed by the Borg cube with the assimilated Picard on. So, Locutus, um, you know, destroyed his ship. In his ship, the Saratoga being destroyed, Ben lost his wife, Jennifer. And Jennifer died on the Saratoga. He was unable to save her. And... You know, even though this is now a few years down the line, he is still consumed with grief by that. And it's only been two, three years um, since the best of both worlds. Um, You know, Deep Space Nine started airing alongside um, Next Generation Series uh, Season 6. Best of both worlds was the Season 3 finale into the Season 4 opener for the Next Generation. Now... Obviously, there's the, the main metaplot with the Bajorans and the Cardassians, which had been developed in some of the episodes of Deep Space Nine. Essentially, the Cardassians had been occupying the planet of Bajor, and they have now pulled away, and they've occupied it for the last 50 years. So for the last 50 years, Bajor has been an occupied territory. Um, the Bajoran militia fought, well, Bajoran terrorist cells, essentially, as a resistance movement, uh, fought against the Cardassians and helped drive them away from the planet. But there's been other things that have been going on, uh, interactions with the Federation and so on. So the Cardassians have withdrawn from Bajor. Bajor requests that the Federation come in to help um, to help them recover, to help them facilitate to a new government, um, you know, to, to man the space station that's in orbit, sort of help look after them. And that is what Cisco's job is. Cisco is brought in for this role. His first officer is a former member of the Bajoran Resistance. Uh, her name is Kira Norris. She's played by Nana Visitor. She is absolutely brilliant. She's one of the best characters in the show. Um also on the station, um, which is a Cardassian-designed space station as well. Also on the station is a um, a shape-shifting security chief named Odo, um, who's an un- 
an alien of an unknown race. He's just called a changeling for a large portion of the time. No one knows his, he isn't even clear on his true origins, but he's able to change his shape. Um, essentially, his his standard form is like goo. <laughs> you know, he's he's goo man. Um, there's also several Ferengi on board the station. Um, Quark, his brother Rom, and his nephew Nog. Uh, Quark runs a bar on the station. And, yeah, he, his bar has been there serving while the Cardassians were there. And when the Federation start coming in, he starts packing up to leave. Along with many of the other uh, shop owners and things like that on the station's promenade. Now, Ben Sisko gets given command of this station. He's there with his young son, Jake. Um, and... It's going to be his first real command. We see him as the first officer on the ship during the Battle of Wolf 359, but it seems this is his first full command. And, you know, he seems ready for it, but at the same time, he also seems unsure of his future in Starfleet. Um, And this is reinforced during an interaction he has with Captain Picard. And in fact, Cisco openly clashes with Picard because of his memories of Locutus. And I think this is something that turned a lot of fans off straight away. But to me, it's one of the most captivating things about this because it in- immediately says this is something different. You know, Picard is a character who was revered by this point. You know, um, Next Generation had been, while it was derided when it started, had gone on to become very, very successful. And Picard is the hero of the next generation. So to have the main character of the new Star Trek spin-off not only, you know, turn around and immediately dislike Picard, and not even just dislike him, be like openly antagonistic towards him in a lot of respects... That is something quite shocking, and I think it did have a real impact on fans. Now, personally, I like it. I think it was a good choice. I think it was a very good choice to show that, you know, and it's something that Star Trek has gone back to in recent years. You know, the character of Commander Shaw, uh, sorry, Captain Shaw in Star Trek Picard, has also done the same thing, where he's he's got these this negative opinion of Picard because of the Battle of Wolf Three Five Nine, you know, and it's that idea of lasting consequences, which is something that seems to be a core tenet of Deep Space Nine. So anyway, Cisco's given command. Um, O'Brien comes on from the enterprise he has taking he is taking over as the station's chief of operations which basically means he's the chief engineer um we were also introduced to uh, science officer jadzia dax who is a trill um she has joined trill which means she is she essentially has a separate organism within her the symbiont dax um, which is like aspects of her personality, but Dax has also lived through several previous hosts, one of which was uh, Curzon, who was a mentor figure 
to Cisco when he was a lot younger. So as a result, Cisco and Dax are quite friendly, and he refers to uh, to Dax as old man. Um, you know, she's played by this young, gorgeous woman. So that's quite uh, quite funny. <laughs> There's also um, the wide-eyed junior doctor, um, Julian Bashir, who is very eager to please and annoys quite a lot of people um, with just his unfailing positivity you know so that's the crew and they are interesting and there's a lot of tension straight away with the crew Uh, one of the rules that star trek the next generation had in place and it was a rule that originally came from gene roddenberry was that he didn't want um tension or bickering or anything like that between crew members because in his opinion, by the 24th century, we would have moved beyond that, which I think is a fair goal. However, narratively, this can constrain creators because you you can have no conflict between the crew, between the characters of the show. So a lot of the times in Star Trek Next Generation, the conflict is between the crew of the Enterprise and an outside force. Same with the original Star Trek. Deep Space Nine set a trend of the characters would have tensions between them. Because while Rick Berman was very much stuck to to Gene Roddenberry's... You know, Gene Roddenberry had recently passed when Deep Space Nine came out. Um, and while he was very much of the opinion that, you know, everything Gene Roddenberry said was, was gospel. And so, you know, Gene Roddenberry didn't want any tension. Therefore, there should be no tension. I will say Gene Roddenberry was aware of Deep Space Nine being developed, um, before, you know, before it actually, before he actually passed away, uh, it's unknown what his opinions were on it. I don't think they've been published. Um, although by this point in Star Trek's development, Gene Roddenberry had been kind of pushed aside as a producer, um, for better or worse. Like his. There's elements of some of his writing that is not the best, not necessarily problematic, but I mean, dude was horny. He he was a horn dog. A lot of his, a lot of the rewrites on like early episodes of of the Next Generation, people have said just you know how much sex he would put in and sexual innuendo and sexual reference, um, into the the scripts when he was writing them. So. You know, it's one of the reasons why I don't think Next Generation's first couple of seasons are particularly great. Um, but hey ho, that's a different thing. But yeah, Deep Space Nine instantly tries to set conflict between them. Like Kira openly says to Cisco, she doesn't want the Federation there. She thinks that Bajor should be standing on its own. Like her opinion is they just got rid of the Cardassians. They don't need someone else coming in and telling them what to do. Which is great, and it sets up an immediate tension there. Um 
you know, Odo particularly seems very grumpy with Starfleet and their rules and regulations. He's more interested in just attaining justice. Um, and obviously, you know, the Ferengi characters don't really interact well with Starfleet either. The plot of the show really starts, though, when Cisco goes down to Bajor itself and goes to meet with the Bajoran spiritual leader, Kai Opaka. And Opaka is the... She's essentially the Bajoran Pope. Now, the Bajorans believe in a race of gods called the Prophets, and the Prophets live in the Celestial Temple. And they talk to the people of Bajor using orbs, which uh, which are referred to as Tears of the Prophets. And the orbs... There's nine orbs that have existed on Bajor throughout the years, throughout the centuries, one of which is still available. The other eight were taken by the Cardassians during the occupation, and they haven't been seen since. The one remaining orb was hidden. Opaka lets Sisko view it. While he does, he has a, a very spiritual, out-of-body experience where he flashes back to different points of his life, including meeting Jennifer. You know, the time he met her, the time she died... Um, moments when they were courting, things like that, as well as everything else that's happened recently. And it becomes clear during this orb experience that he's actually talking to and interacting with the prophets themselves. He then takes the orb back to Deep Space Nine, studies it with um, Jadzia, and... He then takes one of the the little shuttlecraft that they've brought to Deep Space Nine called a runabout, takes that to uh, a nearby part of space in the Bajoran system. And while there, they enter a wormhole, right? Now, this wormhole is a stable wormhole in space-time that leads to the Gamma Quadrant, right? And wormholes themselves are quite rare, but this is the first and only stable wormhole known to exist. The Gamma Quadrant is also halfway across the galaxy. It's a completely different quarter of the galaxy. Um, So they've gone from the Alpha to the Gamma Quadrant instantaneously you know uh, 70 80 years worth of travel at high warp speed in an instant however more than that when they come back through the wormhole cisco ends up stuck inside the wormhole interacting with the prophets you know and and this is where it gets very, very, very interesting because, and a very Star Trek, I will say, this is very Star Trek because it turns out that the prophets are non linear beings, by which I mean they don't experience time linearly. They can see all of time all at once. And so Cisco has to explain the concept to them of time. 
and of a linear existence. But at the same time as doing that, he is also struggling to process his grief over losing Jennifer. And they explicitly pointed out by saying, you know, by by taking him back to the moment of her death and saying, why do you exist here? It is not linear. It's very clever, and I'm probably not doing it any justice at all. It's one of the finest moments um, in what is an incredible pilot episode. And... You know, while this is going on, the rest of the characters on the station are dealing with um, some Klingon, uh, not Klingons, Cardassians, who have come back to the station, led by Goldukat. Goldukat was the former prefect of Bajor, so essentially he was the 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 space Nazi commandant. Essentially, he was the ruler of Deep Space Nine, which was called Terak Nor under the Cardassians. And, you know, essentially in charge of the planet for the last few years of the occupation. And he is played brilliantly by Mark Alimo. Um, but he is also a villain. He does, he wants, he doesn't think Cardassia should have succeeded, seeded Bajor back. Um you know, he's got nothing but disdain for the Resistance. Um, you know, he's not particularly keen on the Federation either. He wants Bajor back. Now, he gets stuck in the wormhole, on the other side of the wormhole, by following the runabout. And so more Cardassians come back and blame the station for destroying him and and things like that. Uh, and I think by this point, the station itself has actually moved from orbit of Bajor to where the wormhole opening was. Because we also find out that every time ships pass through the wormhole, it essentially interrupts the life of the prophets, the wormhole aliens. So yeah, it, it, it's very clever and very complex. And but essentially, the episode ends with, you know, Starfleet remaining on the station. It's a Bajoran station, but Starfleet are there to help administrate it. The wormhole is open. Ducat is returned to the Cardassians. And the wormhole is open for the races of the Alpha Quadrant to go through and explore the other side. So essentially, Deep Space Nine has gone from being this this quiet backwater in orbit of Bajor to one of the most significant trading points in the entire galaxy. You know, big, important station right on the edge of the frontier, right on the edge of a new frontier as well, that is about to become a very popular trading hub. And there's also a, a subplot I, I forgot to mention where Nog, um, Quark's nephew, gets arrested um, while breaking into one of the old stores with uh, someone else. And Cisco blackmails uh, Quark into staying on the station and becoming the first major 
representative of like the shoppers and the traders to stay on the station and you know to open his bar and to keep his bar on the station to keep people there um you know he says you know i'll do this and then i'll i'll let nog go out you know come out of the brig and he's like this is extortion and he's like mm, it is <laughs> you know and uh, and it gets quark a bit of begrudging respect for this federation commander um <laughs> You know, because Quark at the end of the day is a businessman, a very perfect businessman. Um, so you know he's there to make money, and he opens his state, he opens his bar, and you know by the end of the episode that turns out to be a great decision for him because he's about to potentially make a lot of money. <laughs> so yeah, that's how the series starts, and it's a really great introduction. The rest of the episodes go on and introduce a few more characters, most notably the character of Garrick. Garrick is a Cardassian tailor who is living in exile from Cardassia. And, you know, while he might not be welcome on Bajor itself, he is on the station. And he's believed to be, by many people, a former spy, if not still a spy for the Cardassian order. But, you know, he just refers to himself as a tailor and calls himself plain, simple Garrick. Garrick is probably one of the finest recurring characters in this show. <laughs> you know, every episode with Garrick in is a delight. Andrew Robinson plays him beautifully. Um, he's just very, very well done. Um, so, yeah. A lot of great moments with Garrick. And he gets introduced in the second episode, I think, which is past prologue. Um, beyond that, what other characters get introduced? Um, obviously, there's Miles' wife, Keiko, who comes from the Enterprise with him, uh, along with their daughter, Molly. Um, she soon opens a school on the station um, for some of the kids because she was a botanist on Deep Space Nine, on Deep Space Nine, on the Enterprise. But there's no real call for botany on Deep Space Nine. So she's moved there with Miles for his career and finding herself a bit aimless and seeing Jake and Nog get into some trouble, she decides to open a school. And, you know, she helps to convince Rom, um, who, who Nog's father, who is trying to be, uh, at this point, a a Ferengi businessman, although he's not very good at it. Um, she tries to convince him that Nog attending school, especially school taught by a woman, would be good for him because he can mix with other cultures. And if he mixes with other cultures, he would learn about them and learn how to become a good businessman by learning about them. And Rom's like, mm, that makes sense. So they do that. That's It's quite clever. There's some good moments in that episode. Keiko doesn't get a lot of chances to shine in Deep Space Nine, which is a shame because Rosalind Chow is a good actress and she's a good character. Um, but yeah, I don't know if it's just that the actress wasn't available quite a lot or if they didn't have much for her to do. But yeah. Um, 
But yeah, most of the first season episodes are pretty standard. Um, first season of Deep Space Nine is probably the weakest. I'd say the first few episodes are great, like the first two, three, or four. Really good, really clever. Um, you know, Emissary, Past Prologue, Necessary Evil is another good one. Um and then there's a couple in the middle, like the school episode, where it's like, maybe not the A plot of the episode is very good, but the B plot is usually pretty good. Like, I think the, the one with Keiko is the B plot of the episode. Um, or, or, you know, there's other small plots, like um, Bashir trying to make friends with both Kira and uh, O'Brien, and both of them being very tired of him, but eventually, eventually him winning them round... <laughs> Um, and becoming quite friendly with them, which is is great. Um, but for me, the first real highlight of this season is towards the end of the season, which is the episode Duet. Um, Duet features a Cardassian coming onto the station, and Kira recognizes him as a big terrorist, uh, a big influential Cardassian leader called uh, Goldar Heel, who is referred to by the Bajorans as the Butcher of Galatep. So, you know, they're essentially one of those big evil Nazis. And a lot of the episode is a two-hander between the character of Maritza, who she believes is actually Dahil, and um, Kira. And... A lot of it's done in interrogation rooms, and it's absolutely fantastic. Some amazing performances between the two. Um, it turns out at the end of the episode that Maritza is not Dahil. Dahil unfortunately escaped justice, but Maritza feel, felt that the Cardassians should pay. And so while he has the illness that people at the Galatep labor camp suffered from, he had himself surgically altered to resemble Dahil because he believes that the Bajorans need to punish Cardassians for the occupation. And he also believes it will be good for Cardassia when the Bajorans do. And he feels that he could be an example in that regard. He could be one of those Cardassians that deserves to be punished. It's quite a heart-wrenching story in moments, and actually has a a bit of a sting in the tail at the ending. There's also an episode, I think it's the 13th episode, called Battle Lines, where Opaka dies... Um, there's a bit more to it than that. It's Star Trek. It involves a trip to the Gamma Quadrant and nanites bringing people back from the dead and so on and so forth. But essentially, Opaka is kind of killed off and written out of the show. Um, so as a result, the Bajorans now need new Kai. And so the season finale uh, is called In the Hands of the Prophets. And it introduces the two main competitors for the role of Kai, um, Vadek. Uh, Vadek Win and Vadek Barail. Um Now, Win is played by. Oh, damn it, I've forgotten her name. Louise Fletcher, I believe it is. She played Nurse Ratchet in the original um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo Nest. She is 
brilliant in Deep Space Nine. Absolutely brilliant. Um, and Burial is, again, very good. Um, Wynne sets herself up as an antagonist very quickly um, because she protests at Keiko's school because Keiko is teaching the children, which include Bajoran children, about the wormhole aliens, but using a very scientific explanation of the wormhole and the aliens that live within it and not the spiritual. Uh, And obviously this is a very kind of creation versus evolution type argument as well. And there's a lot of dispute back and forth. Meanwhile, Boreal is kind of introduced as more of a moderate. He's very kind. He's very charming. Um, Kira especially quite likes him. And yeah, it's the, the, the juxtaposition between the two as they're both vying for the position of Kai. Uh, in the future and you know the episode centers around I, th- I think it ends with an assassination attempt on Burial. but yeah it's it's very good and kind of closes off the season in quite a nice way so while season one of Deep Space Nine was clearly struggling to find its feet and there are some episodes of season one that seemed very clearly written like they were originally designed as next generation episodes and then reworked uh, into Deep Space Nine and a lot of them don't seem to have an idea of what you know what they want to be just yet Um, for example there's an episode called The Storyteller where O'Brien is like dealing with a cloud creature on Bajor or there's an episode with a subplot where there's two rival factions of Bajorans arguing over like a territory dispute and Cisco's having to get involved. And it's like, the, that feels like something that was very clearly designed for... Um, very clearly designed for a, a, a next generation episode. Some of the others, though, like the a Man Alone, which deals with um, Odo. There's another one called Vortex, which deals with um, you know Odo's origins. There's one where Bashir is taken over by an alien. There's one where Dax is put on trial. You know, those all feel um, like they were designed for Deep Space Nine. And then there's others like. Um, you know, Dramatis Personae and um, Babel that could be, you know, just any... St- they could work in any season of Star Trek. And then there's ones like Captive Pursuit, where, you know, an alien comes through from the Gamma Quadrant, like, fearing for his life because he's being hunted, you know? And it's like, that's a very definite Deep Space Nine. You know, it uses the plots, you know, the setup of what Deep Space Nine is to tell its story. Um, same with the Nagus as well, which is obviously a Ferengi-based episode and features Grand Nagus Zek, who goes on to become a supporting character um, as Deep Space Nine goes on. Season 2, though, is where I think Deep Space Nine starts to earn its identity and where episodes start to feel like they were written more for 
um, for Deep Space Nine itself. And, you know, the opening three-parter, I think, really kind of highlights this as well. Um, You know, with the idea of, you know, this legendary Bajoran warrior who's been, well, legendary Bajoran soldier who's been trapped on a Cardassian mining planet and then Kira going to rescue him. And, you know, it's all part of a a plot involving the Bajorans and the Cardassians and, and things like that. There's a lot going on. Um, but, you know, that's a very, very Deep Space Nine episode, you know, or, or storyline. You know, all the characters get something to do across the three episodes, as well as, obviously, the great guest star of uh, Richard Bamer as um, Lee Nalis. You know, Invasive Procedures, which features a trill um, played by John Glover coming on to Steel Dax. You know, that's very interesting. Um, you know, the episode Cardassians, which has a, a Cardassian boy who's been raised by a Bajoran, you know, after being abandoned on Bajor. You know, that's very interesting. That's a very Deep Space Nine uh, plot. You know, and then things go from there and you know season two i think is is good and has some very good episodes and some very good questions in it as as things continue to develop like um you know not every episode is perfect not every episode is a winner by any means but it's like quark gets sent by grand negus zek to to do a trading mission with you know, a race in the Gamma Quadrant, you know, which starts laying the foundwork for a race in the Gamma Quadrant, or, you know, a group in the Gamma Quadrant called the Dominion, um, who are being set up almost as sort of like an anti-Federation, which is like the first time we've heard them mentioned. Uh, and obviously that develops the Ferengi as well, because he's sent with a Ferengi woman who's pretending to be a Ferengi man because women can't be business people. You know, so that's quite interesting. There's an episode called uh, Sanctuary, where a group of farmers from the Gamma Quadrant come through the wormhole, and they need a place to live, and they believe that Bajor is their legendary homeworld. And so, you know, that's a story that kind of balances and takes twists and turns and has quite a poignant ending, actually, that that particular episode. Um, you know, a, a Bajor at this time is, is starting to struggle. Like, this is a race of farmers and Bajor's struggling with a famine. You know? Some very, very interesting things going on. Um... And then, of course, you know, some other interesting ideas. Like, there's there's an episode where Cisco and O'Brien get stranded on a planet that's rejecting technology, even when it leads to people dying. And just the, the conflict that that creates between our heroes and the other characters, that's a lot of fun. Um, you know, we get... We get an episode which is basically a romance. It's basically, um, oh, what's the film? Casablanca. It's essentially Casablanca on Deep Space Nine 
where um, Quark's former flame, who's Natima Lang, she's a Cardassian woman, but a Cardassian like revolutionary um, with her students, and they want to remove power from the Cardassian military and give it to a civilian government. So she wants to leave like a civilian coup, right? And so there's an episode at play with with her and Quark and Garrick's involved as well, and Garrick's being hired by a member of the, the you know, the Cardassian Obsidian Order, you know, and being tempted by like, oh, this could end your exile if you get rid of her, and it's essentially Casablanca, <laughs> and it works really well. It's a lot of fun, um, you know. There's an episode where three Klingon characters from the original series, Kang, Kor, and Koloth, all played by their original actors, um, come back. And John Kolikos as Kor, especially, is incredible. And and they come back and team up with Jadzia, who we've seen has a bit of an appreciation for Klingon culture and she's, you know, she exercises um, with like Klingon weapons and stuff, but she basically, we learned that Curzon Dax was an ambassador to the Klingon empire at one point. And she encountered all three of these, these great Klingon warriors from TOS. Um, and that now they want her to team up with them and fulfill an oath because she swore Curzon swore a blood oath with them because they a character called the albino killed their three children and so Jatia teams up with them to go and fight the albino and it's like that's a great little episode as well um you know, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, most... I, I don't think any of them survive except for Kor and Jadzia, obviously. Um, but it's a nice little, like, last hurrah for them. Um, there's also the two-part of the Marquis, which builds off of um, some plot threads that were going on in Next Generation at the time as well, and was also very clearly designed to set up plot threads for Voyager, which would have been currently in development. The idea of setting up basically a group of Federation colonists, almost as like a resistance movement uh, against Cardassian forces on the border um, in like a Cardassian demilitarized zone. And it's like, that's a clever idea as well. Um, and makes for a very interesting two-parter where it sets them up as as who who and what they are. Um, and there's also and then that's followed immediately by a Garrick-centric episode called The Wire, um, which is one of one of Garrick's best appearances, um, where he starts suffering like a debilitating medical condition. And Bashir has to try and unravel Garrick's secrets to, to try and save his life. And Garrick tells him several versions of his past, like who he is and what his past is. And it's like, that's really interesting as well. And 
is an episode that has also led to some memes. Like, there's a very famous meme of um, Garrick and Bashir from the end of this episode. Um, and it's a meme format you've probably seen, um, you know, whether you're a fan of Star Trek or not. But the, the original scene as plays is... Bashir asking him, you know, at the end of all that, I want to know of all the things you told me, which ones were true and which ones were lies? And Garrick kind of smiles and says, oh, my dear doctor, they were all true. And Bashir says, especially, you know, even the lies. And Garrick says, especially the lies with his sort of devilish smile. Um, And, you know, that episode introduces so many interesting concepts um for the characters um and elaborate so much more on who garrick potentially is like we still don't have that clear of an idea even when the series finishes of who garrick was and what his origin was but we know that he was connected to the former head of the obsidian order who is a character called Inabran Tain. Um, you know, essentially this is like Cardassian J. Edgar Hoover, <laughs> you know, um, who actually managed to make it to retirement age, like he managed to retire. And Garrick was one of his chief operatives. And we also learned Garrick's first name, Elam. So Elam Garrick. But yeah, very, very interesting episode. And, you know, a lot of other trends sort of start to appear here. Like, there's an episode called Armageddon Game, where O'Brien and Bashir end up kind of stuck on this planet and on the run. Um, And this is the episode where their friendship kind of really develops. And... Their friendship goes on to be one of the best things in this entire series. They end up having a proper bromance, almost. Like, it's up there with, like, JD and Turk from Scrubs as, like, one of the best (laughs) depictions of male friendship. Like... They're the best of friends, like the real ride or die <laughs> friends to the end kind of thing. Um, and you know it develops quite naturally over over rivals and then Armageddon Game, which are two episodes this season, where it's like, you know, O'Brien can't stand Bashir for so much of the time, but he just warms to him because Bashir's just so genuine. Um, Kira as well. Kira becomes very good friends with him. They have a they have an episode where they both end up in the mirror universe, um, which is a concept from the original series of Star Trek. You know the the mirror universe where everyone was evil and Spock had a beard. Well, they go back there, and it turns out that the the mirror Terran Empire has fallen. And has been replaced with a Klingon Cardassian alliance. And, you know, Kira is this, I don't know, 
like debauched Roman empress type character, like lounging in like leather and latex, looking like a a dominatrix. <laughs> you know, um, you know the queen of Deep Space Nine. Except it's not called Deep Space Nine; it's still Taraknor, um, ruling Bajor as the intendant. Um, while you know other characters are her slaves. You know, O'Brien is one of the slave class. Cisco is only one of only the only reason Cisco isn't one of the slave humans is because he's sharing her bed. <laughs> you know, it's a very intriguing episode, and like Bashir and Kira end up there accidentally. And Mira Kira is like so enamored with herself like, her alternate version. Like, it's kind of sexual in some regards. Um, And yeah, that's the episode crossover. That one's, it's quite good. It's not one of my favourites, but it is quite good. And then, you know, there's more stuff as well. Like, the Kai Wen appears in the opening three-parter. She then reappears in an episode towards the end called The Collaborator, along with Boreal. And I think by this point, Kira and Boreal were romantically involved. Or at least heading that way. And it's revealed that Boreal might have been a collaborator with the Cardassians. And Wynne is sort of trying to use that to prevent him from being Kai. But Wynne never does anything directly. Like, everyone knows she's behind things, but she never does anything directly. It's all done through through agents and sideways. Everything's everything's awkward. Like, she, she makes... She's responsible for the assassination attempt on Beryl in at the end of season one. But it's never really done. And Kira and Cisco hate her, and she clashes with both of them. I, I forgot to mention in... Um, season one in emissary like the reason it's called emissary is because cisco is given this like title of emissary of the prophets a title he is hugely uncomfortable with by the way he gets given that title by koopaka and because he finds the wormhole he finds the celestial temple that means according to like bajoran prophecy and bajoran scripture he is the emissary so to a lot of the devout Bajoran faithful, Cisco is a religious figure. <laughs> you know, not not a Kai, not a Pope in the same way that, like, you know, you know, not that sort of religious figure. I don't know what the best way to describe him would be. Like a saint, almost? Like a living saint? Um... You know, like how someone like Mother Teresa would be would have been treated by the Catholics, you know, before she died. You know, where she wasn't in charge, but she was a revered figure. Or, I don't know, like someone like the Dalai Lama, where it's like a very revered figure within the religion, but also on the world stage. Like people, in Be- people of Bajor worship and respect him. Um, and he's uncomfortable with it. 
Um, there's also starts to be a trend of episodes which we'll, we'll just call the O'Brien Must Suffer. Um, there's actually two in season two. Um, the the O'Brien Must Suffer becomes a trope where because O'Brien is the everyman, you know, he is the standard. He's the audience surrogate. He is, you know, just a standard white collar man, not white collar, blue collar man. You know, just trying to to do his job to the best of his ability, as best as he can. And he's he's completely charming, but as a result, they try and give him plots where they really kind of twist the knife into him and give him horrible things to deal with. Um. And as a result of these these horrible, dark, twisted things that happen to him, he goes through some traumatic stuff. And there's two in season two. There's the episode Whispers, um, where he feels everyone kind of conspiring against him. And um, the episode Tribunal, where it actually gets put on trial by Cardassians for being a member of the Marquis. And you know, and he's he's outright told at the start of his trial, "Oh no, you're guilty. You will be found guilty by this trial. This this is this trial is just a formality. It's just to decide your sentence. But your sentence will be death because you're guilty." <laughs> you know, it's so dark. <laughs> but yeah, the most interesting and plot related parts of season two concern the Dominion. Okay? Now, the Dominion are built up in a couple of episodes. We learn that they are one of the more powerful bodies in the Gamma Quadrant. They are... They control a large area of space. And we soon learn... That you know, not only they're responsible for like trade and a lot of financial and geographic control in a large area of space, but also that they're responsible for a lot of the military control, and that their military is pretty brutal. And we learn this at the end of one of the episodes called Shadow Play, where it's revealed that all the people of this colony were exterminated by the Dominion. They are something to be feared. And it's only by the end of the season that we get any sort of idea of what the Dominion are. Because the final episode of the season is an episode called The Jem'Hadar. Cisco, Jake, Nog, and Quark go to a camping trip in the Gamma Quadrant. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, now, Cisco and Quark end up captured alongside a a young woman called Eris by these powerful reptilian soldiers called the Jem'Hadar. Um, 
and the Jem'Hadar are quite fearsome and terrifying and very lethal. Cisco and Jake manage to escape, manage to help, um, you know, to free, you know, Cisco and Quark. Meanwhile, um, the rest of the station kind of learns about the Dominion and the Jem'Hadar. Because um, we turn out the Jem'Hadar are the soldiers of the Dominion. And I think the Dominion attacks a Bajoran colony on the far side of the wormhole. I think they also destroy some satellites or, or some other stuff. Or, or stuff like that might come later, I can't remember. But yeah, essentially tensions are starting to appear. And they say, you know, stop. Stop sort of coming to our side of the galaxy. Stop involving yourself. And so this tension increases. And a galaxy-class starship, same design as the Enterprise-D from the next generation, comes to Deep Space Nine with its captains, the USS Odyssey. And it comes to Deep Space Nine so that it, they can go to challenge the Dominion and bring back Cisco. So that goes along with all three runabouts, and the three runabouts piloted by the our main DS9 characters. So uh, Odo, O'Brien, Julian, Kira, Dax. And a battle ensues. And during this battle, the Jem'Hadar, one of the Jem'Hadar ships, which their ships are only small, one of the Jem'Hadar ships, there's three of them in this battle, fighting the Odyssey. And one of them makes a suicide run at the Odyssey, collides with the main star drive section, and blows the ship to bits. So, visually, this is the new threat, the Jem'Hadar, being shown to destroy a ship that was the hero ship of the previous series. You know, it's it's not the Enterprise D, but the Odyssey is the same class, the same design as the Enterprise D. So essentially, we just watch the Enterprise be destroyed. To viewers, that's what what's just happened. And at the end of the episode, the final twist of the knife is that Eris and her race, the Vorta, they're the ones in charge of the Jem'Hadar. And she leaves the station. And it's sort of quite heavily hinted that the Dominion are going to be a future threat. And that this, this cold war is starting between the two races, between the Federation and the Dominion, between the Gamma and Alpha Quadrants. And it's very interesting. And it's all built to quite slowly. You know, it's, it's only really this episode where we get our first look at them. And... You know, we've had a couple of mentions here and there throughout this season. But nothing much. In fact, quite a lot of the episodes of this season actually take place completely on our side of the 
the wormhole in the Alpha Quadrant. You know, it's stuff on the station, or it's stuff in Cardassia, stuff in Bajor. You know, it's not really been stuff in the Gamma Quadrant. You know, things like the Marquis, the Marquis two-parter, not even a whiff of the Gamma Quadrant in that. So the idea that now the Gamma Quadrant is not only starting to be explored, but also built up. Like, I think as well, it's one of the reasons why the Screans were fleeing is because of the Dominion in the episode Sanctuary. I think that's one of the reasons why they're on the run the way they are. It's because of the Dominion. They're refugees from the Dominion. And it's clever. And it starts to set the show up as something very, very different. Because while Deep Space Nine is serialized in the way that a lot of modern shows are, there are very clearly ongoing plot threads. The Dominion is one of them. And then the character plot threads are also another. Like how... Bashir and O'Brien's relationship changes, how uh, Bashir and Kira's relationship changes, how Kira and Sisko's relationship changes. You know, these are all ongoing threads, ongoing ideas. You know, if you skipped a few episodes between season one and middle of season two, there's a lot that might have happened that you might have missed. And you might be able to catch up with some of it, but this is a show that rewards repeat viewing. You know, regular watching. You know, it, it rewards a regular audience because there are things that change and develop. And that's another reason why I think Deep Space Nine did so well and why I think it's still so highly regarded because things like that make it very ahead of its time. You know, the, the idea of serialised storytelling television we think of, of as a very modern thing things like heroes lost um you know the wire the sopranos that's what we think of when we think of like serialized storytelling you know the sort of the, the wave of shows that happened on cable and hbo and and things like that you know within the last 20 or 30 years well last 20 years really deep space nine was very ahead of the curve I think in the and I think it's one reason why season 1 stands out as so much weaker than the rest of it is because season 1 is very episodic. Season 2 is very connected, very serialized in a lot of ways. And it only gets more pronounced from here. So I like to think I've made a pretty good argument as to why I think season one and season two of Star Trek Deep Space Nine are worth your time. And the reason I've done that is because the general consensus within a lot of the Star Trek fan base is that Deep Space Nine only gets interesting when season three starts. And I think this is because... A lot of the early seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation are quite rough. Um, you know, seasons one, two, and three, as many good episodes as there are in there, there's a lot of bad as well. Whereas 
seasons four, five, and six, especially of Star Trek The Next Generation, are generally quite well regarded. And so quite solid throughout. And so you get that with... You know, you, you get that with that's that same sort of view with both Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager as well, in that um, they only get good after a certain point. And it's not necessarily the case. Um, but the the things that people sort of say is the reason where, the, you know, the point where they become good tends to be, um, you know, after a major change. So with Star Trek Voyager, um, the character of Seven of Nine gets added in Season 4 um, once they encounter the Borg. And so that is generally considered to be the jumping on point. However, if you jump on there, you miss quite a lot of very good episodes in Seasons 2 and 3 especially. Um, for Deep Space Nine, Season 3 or Season 4, for reasons I'll get to in a bit, are generally considered to be good jumping on points. And the biggest reason is that the opening two-parter of Season 3, The Search, gives Deep Space Nine something that a lot of Star Trek fans felt it needed. Which is that they give it a new ship. Up until now, the crew have been sort of kept to the station. And if they do go anywhere, they use a Starfleet runabout to do it. Runabouts are essentially glorified shuttlecraft um they're capable of going to warp they can you know travel about a bit more but essentially those are the go-to ships so they're small ships for a small number of crew members season three introduces a starship but not just any starship the uss defiant is a warship and it is given to Deep Space Nine by Starfleet and equipped with a Romulan cloaking device. Um, a cloaking device that for use in the Gamma Quadrant to allow it to operate in the Gamma Quadrant without being detected by the Dominion. And their first mission that they are given is to head into the Gamma Quadrant and try and make contact with the Dominion and their leadership. And it's a pretty good two-parter. It, it, it explores more of the Dominion. It introduces uh, a new character of uh, Starfleet Station Security Officer, Michael Eddington. There had been attempts at Starfleet Security Officers previously that had usually clashed with Odo. Um, there was one called uh, Perim, who had been a recurring character in Season 2. But Eddington was new, and Eddington got a lot more development as the show went on. Um, it's quite a good character, to be honest. I'll be talking more about him as we go. Um, and obviously this irks Odo. Um, there was also a Romulan character introduced in this two-parter, uh, very briefly, played by um, Martha Hackett, who would go on to play the character of Seska in Star Trek Voyager. Um, she's quite good. I wish she'd have been a recurring character. Um, she's quite interesting. But, uh, yeah, Odo gets drawn to a planet in the Gamma Quadrant as well himself, where he finds a race of changelings, just like him. 
and uh, the leader of which is played by uh, Salome Jens, who again becomes a recurring character, because it's revealed through this two-parter that Odo's race, the changelings, are actually the founders of the Dominion. They are the the main governing race, and they distrust solids. They created the Vorta, they created the Jem'Hadar to serve them. The Vorta act as their, their voice and their diplomats, the Jem'Hadar act as their soldiers, and they control the Dominion. And obviously Odo's quite horrified by this. Um, it turns out Odo is one of a group of changelings that you know were sent out as infants into the galaxy to sort of learn more about the solids by living among them. Obviously, because of the wormhole, Odo fell through it and arrived at Bajor during the Cardassian occupation, where he was studied and raised. It's it's an interesting twist. Um, there's a lot of other things that are going on at the same time. Um, you know, the actual episode is, is quite engaging. Um, but it's an interesting new wrinkle that we finally, Odo finally finds his people and they turn out to be the founders of the Dominion. Someone, someone that he's very much against. And he has to make the choice to leave them at the end of the episode to return to the station with Kira, to return to Starfleet. And it's very clear by the end of the episode that the tensions aren't going any way. You know, um, you know, throughout the rest of the episode, the, the rest of the crew is in a, like an, uh, a holodeck scenario um, where they're experiencing, you know, what would happen if there was peace between the Federation and the Dominion. And it's like, while they're experiencing this, you know, um, the Dominion take Deep Space Nine. Um the Romulan officer to rule tries to fight against them and ends up killed. Um, Eddington works with them quite easily, um, following orders, which you know turned a lot of people off to him straight away. But I find it interesting. Um, just the idea of you know the lengths that people would go to to stop the Dominion. So it, yeah, it's clear that there's distrust there already but yeah it's um yeah it, it allows for some good character development for odo and becomes the start of his arc with his people um and really starts to explore more of the Dominion. The Dominion do take a backseat in the next few episodes, though. There are still some episodes where their story will develop or where they will appear, but a lot of the coming episodes deal with other things. You know, um, Quark ends up involved in some Klingon politics, uh, which brings in Gowron, who's a support, former supporting character from Next Generation, uh, for the first of his Deep Space Nine appearances. Um, Dax learns about a secret life that her previous host had. Um, you know, a, a life that she'd been made to forget. Um, Kira ends up captured by a a Cardassian 
move uh, by the Obsidian Order, the Cardassian Obsidian Order, and surgically altered to look like a Cardassian, where she's told that she's been an undercover agent this entire time. And it turns out to be a plot where um, she's been sent in as the daughter of this officer, uh, you know, this Cardassian officer, um, who, who his daughter was a secret agent, and she had surgically altered herself to look Bajoran. Um and had disappeared during the occupation. And, you know, it turns out that that was all based on Cardassian politics, the whole idea of there being a military officer who was also a dissident against the military government. You know, he was supporting uh, a revolt in the same way as Natima Lang in the previous season. There's um, an episode where... Jake starts dating one of Quark's Darbo girls. They're basically like, um, you know, glamorous assistants that work at the gambling uh, desk. Uh, Odo ends up purchasing, um, you know, ends up being given a baby um, who turns out to be an infant Jem'Hadar. And we see them grow and we see him become a warrior. And just how aggressive and and we and we learn that the Jem'Hadar grow really quickly like he grows from um a baby to adult within a matter of days you know they are genetically engineered soldiers um there's an episode called civil defense which has spawned so many memes recently because basically the the crew accidentally trigger a a civil defense program on Deep Space Nine of like what the station would do if it found itself in the middle of a Bajoran slave revolt during the occupation. And it's this buried computer program. Um, and essentially it's an equivalent to a, a Next Generation episode called Disaster, where the ship is, you know, badly damaged and the crew is spread all over. And it's very similar to that. We've got the crew spread everywhere as the station starts attacking them. And all the while, there's these pre-recorded messages from Ducat saying, attention, Bajoran workers, we are escalating our response to your situation if you do not relinquish control. And it just keeps escalating, and Ducat and Garrick end up involved as well, It's which is great because the two of them are just hurling barbs at each other the entire time. There's clear there's a, a very strong history there. The two of them do not get along. And any episode where they're together, they just shine. Um, you know, there's a an episode where a transporter clone of Riker from The Next Generation turns up and steals the Defiant and takes it and because it turns out that he's joined the Marquis and so he uh, steals the Defiant and he's got Kira with him to help him unlock it takes the Defiant takes it deep into Cardassian space and like I said the Defiant's a warship and it has a cloaking device on board they're not supposed to use the cloaking device in the Alpha Quadrant as part of the agreement that they have with the Romulans because the Federation isn't supposed to have cloaking technology but obviously Tom Riker is using it as a warship and he goes up against the Cardassians. So Cisco and Ducat have to kind of like team up and try and stop him. And in doing so, it's revealed that the Cardassian Obsidian Order, which shouldn't have ships, has a fleet of secret ships that 
Riker knew about. So that's quite interesting. Um, Riker ends up having to surrender in order to get the Defiant back and to to save the lives of his his marquee crew members. Uh, unfortunately, he never comes back, which is a shame because he becomes this dangling plot thread where Kira says, oh, I'll come and rescue you, Tom, and never does. Um, there's a brilliant two-parter called Past Tense where um, Cisco, Bashir, Dax um, all end up sort of time-travelling back to... Uh, 21st century Earth, uh, and I think like next year as well, 2024, they arrive and they end up becoming part of the Bell Riots, which are, you know, these riots that started in what was called the Sanctuary District, which is basically where the government, the American government put all its poor and homeless people. And, you know, that's not something that's completely prescient. That's the, Past Tense is a great episode, and it becomes more and more scarily relevant the closer we get to it. Because it's, if anything, like, this is something that was predicted in the 90s. And as we're getting closer to 2024, it seems even more likely that it's going to happen. Like, a big class war revolt it's a very interesting episode highly recommend it um and then the episode after that life support that's a really good one as well that features um Burial being injured um while negotiating a peace treaty with the Cardassians and when I say injured he is grievously injured and Bashir manages to kind of keep him alive by doing a lot of replacement of like his organs, including his brain. Um, and he ends up becoming like half robotic. And Kai Wynn is with him. She's desperately trying to use him to, you know, to to complete the treaty. You know, it's the first major treaty between Bajor and Cardassia since the end of the occupation, and Borio is leading it. But by the end of the episode, Borio ends up dead. And, you know, he'd been involved with Kira at this point as well, so she loses him as well. Um, and Wynne just goes on to be a pure bitch about it, because it's like, yeah, she won. And now her biggest political rival is gone and not only that his win she now gets to take you know his win with the treaty she now gets to take credit for <sighs> she's despicable i love her um but yeah episode 14 is the next one that really sort of continues the idea of the dominion because and is also one of my favorite episodes for for the b story as well which i'll get to because basically Kira is injured and when her life is in jeopardy, Odo kind of reveals his feelings to her and he reveals that he wants to go back to his people. He really wants to be with them, but he also doesn't want to leave her because he's in love with her. And it's at that point that Kira 
transforms back and we learn that it's the female founder and she was she was wanting to know why Odo wouldn't come back and it's because he's in love with Kira and he can't tell her so yeah you know the only reason he told this fake Kira is because he thought she was about to die very interesting story but then the B story is also amazing Right for the B story, Nog, who is now a man by Ferengi tradition, wants to buy an apprenticeship because that's what young Ferengi is supposed to do. They're supposed to buy a, an apprenticeship from someone that they respect, and Nog decides to buy an apprenticeship from Cisco or tries to because he wants to join Starfleet. Now, Nog has been a character I've not mentioned much, but he's been developing. It's like since the Jem'Hadar where he was abducted, we've shown it's been shown that that has clearly affected him. You know, the the being abducted and feeling helpless has clearly affected him. And this episode really kind of explores that a bit more by saying he wants to join Starfleet because you know and he 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 can't tell cisco the real reason until eventually cisco kind of breaks him down towards the end of the episode and nog in this this heartfelt speech that's absolutely brilliant breaks down and says his father rom is one of the finest engineers he knows and again this is something we've seen we have seen how good of an engineer rom is you know he he's been responsible for keeping quarks running like quarks is quarks is quarks bar and the hollow suites have had so many ridiculous patch jobs of technology because rom's just trying to keep everything working and it always works <laughs> you know it's it's the most unorthodox type of repair but it works and you know nog says rom could be a chief engineer on a starship but he's a ferengi and because he's a ferengi he has to be a good businessman because that's what ferengi culture is and he's not a good businessman rom is not a businessman and nog has seen what that has done to rom and he doesn't want to end up the same way. And he also sees Starfleet as his way out. And it's one of the best scenes ever. Nog is probably my favourite character in Deep Space Nine. He's not in every episode. I think of the 170-odd episodes, he's in about 40 of them. But that also means he's the most regular recurring character. And as fascinating as someone like Garrick is, for example, Nog's development is so good. So, so good. You know, and it all really sort of... It doesn't start here, but this is the turning point where, you know, he joins Starfleet and he wants to be a better person. And it leads to such an incredible journey for the character. So, yeah. 
there's some more interesting stuff in um, throughout the rest of the season. There's a, an O'Brien Must Suffer episode where he sees the future and sees Romulans destroy the station. Um, there's an episode where Grand Nagus Zek, after trying to meet the prophets, has had his like entire personality rewritten by them. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> you know, he's... He's created a whole new Ferengi rules of acquisition, which is far more fair to the customer. And and Quark ends up pleading with the prophets to turn him back because he's got a base. The prophets have basically broken their society by doing it. Um. So yeah, that's quite a good one. Um. There's another Mirror Universe episode where, um the mirror version of Miles, uh, who's called Smiley, comes in and abducts Cisco to pretend to be himself to to help lead their resistance. Um but the the final run of episodes for this series is where it gets really good. For starters, there's a two-parter um called Improbable Cause and The Die is Cast. And these were actually shown when I first watched them on BBC Two together. They were a combined 90-minute episode. Oh, it was so good. Um, basically, Garrick's shop gets bombed. So Odo starts investigating who's trying to kill Garrick and why. And it leads onto a mystery that kind of explores a lot of elements throughout the season. Because it turns out that Tane, who was the former leader of the Obsidian Order, has come back to them. The Obsidian Order have joined up with a Romulan intelligence agency called the Tal Shiar. The two of them together have built a fleet of ships, um, which was the fleet in the nebula um, that Riker was trying to attack. And they lead this fleet of ships into the Gamma Quadrant to attack the Founder homeworld. And there are so many great scenes in this episode. Um, plus some phenomenal action scenes. Like, action scenes in Star Trek. Star Trek was shot with model effects. And a lot of them were quite basic. They didn't really have the budget for a lot of advanced maneuvers um, in Star Trek The Next Generation. With Improbable Cause and the Dyer's cast especially, there is a big fleet battle at the end. Jem'Hadar fighters versus Romulan birds, uh, Romulan warbirds and Cardassian ships, and then the Defiant arrives in the middle of it. Absolutely incredible. Incredible. And there's a shot where, like, the Defiant does a loop-the-loop with the battle happening all around it to end up behind a Dominion ship that it can, like, fire through. It's very good. And the reason is because the producer of Deep Space Nine, Iris Stephen Bear, wanted to show the space battles. He wanted to show the action. He didn't just want to do it as reaction shots from inside the ship. You know? And it works and it becomes so engaging. But even beyond the action, there's some great character stuff in this as well. There's uh, confrontations between Garrick and uh, Tame and Tane kind of offers him a place back by his side. Um, you know, because it, you know, there's the revelation that Garrick learnt that some of Tane's former agents were turning up dead because Tane was kind of cleaning house 
and you know Garrick blew up his own shop to get Odo's attention. That was a great reveal, especially when Odo confronts him about it. Um, Garrick tortures Odo, and Odo like tearfully reveals that no, he he does want to go back to his people. You know, he he, he misses them. And it's this great moment because you see Garrick really kind of hurting about the fact that he's having to torture, you know, someone he cares for. Not necessarily a friend, but, you know, he doesn't want to do this. Um, yeah, it's it's very clever. And then there's the reveal that the founders have actually orchestrated all of this. One of the Romulan officers on Tain's ship turns out to be a founder infiltrator, and he reveals to Odo, they're everywhere. They're in the Klingon Empire, they're in the Federation, they're in the Romulan government, they're in the Cardassian government, and they plan this to get rid of the Tal Shiar and the Obsidian Order, two of the biggest intelligence-gathering networks in the Alpha Quadrant. And they've just taken them out in one fell swoop. And their biggest enemies left are the Federation and the Klingon Empire. It's very good. Very clever. Still not the end of the season. There's some some more good stuff. A couple of other, like, done-in-ones. There's... um, Cisco grows a beard, um, teams up with Jake to build a Bajoran uh, sailing ship, like Solar Sailor. Um, Kai Wynn um, gets Kira to to deal with the former resistance leader called Shakar. Um, Quark ends up going back to the Ferengi homeworld um, and encountering a character called Brunt from the Ferengi Commerce Authority um, because... His mother Mugi, uh, his, his her name's Ishka, but her and Rom, uh, like Rom, especially calls her Mugi, which is like, um, you know, a Ferengi term for mummy. Um, and it's yeah, she's Ferengi women aren't supposed to wear clothes or um, earn a profit or run a business or anything like that. They're essentially second class citizens. Ishka has been doing all of that. She's been wearing clothes. She's been, um, you know, she's been profitable. Like she's been running business, not not just running businesses. She's been profiting from her businesses. She's a really good businesswoman, a really shrewd and really savvy businesswoman. And the basically the Ferengi IRS are on her, and they want to kind of punish her. And yeah, Quark has to kind of dig her out of all of this um the ferengi episodes in deep space nine get a kind of a bad rap but i think this is particularly one of the best ones it's called family business but then the final episode of the season and this is a good one is called the adversary okay a federation ambassador comes on board the defiant takes it out for a mission he's a, a former friend of cisco um and he said that there's been a coup on a planet of Zenketh, uh, a planet that the uh, Federation had a colony war with. And he wants to take the Defiant to the nearby Federation colonies to kind of fly the flag. However, it turns out that the Ambassador is actually a changeling. The Defiant ends up cloaked. The crew cannot, um, you know, cannot decloak it, cannot 
stop whatever program the changeling has put in place. And so they have to deal with the changeling. They have to hunt him down. And Odo is giving them tips and tricks the entire time on what to do. It's a very good, very tense episode. It's also the episode where Cisco gets promoted to captain, um, which is another big change that people sort of highlight as a big change for the series. They managed to win. They managed to defeat um, the changeling. Um, but when I say they, I mean Odo. Odo fights the changeling. And in the fight, the changeling ends up dead. And as he's laying dying, he whispers to Odo and says, we're everywhere. And Odo tells the others this later on. And it's on that kind of somber cliffhanger that the series comes to an end with the idea that, you know, there may not even have been a coup on Zenketh. It might have all been planned by the Changelings to bring the Federation to war. Because if the Federation's at war with its enemies, it's not focusing on the Dominion. It's very good, very tense. And the Cold War is heating up. While Deep Space Nine, I think, is, is one of the better shows, it was not one of the most successful shows. Now... Seasons 1 and 2 were airing alongside uh, Star Trek Next Generation Season 6 and 7. Now, Star Trek Next Generation had the primetime slot. Deep Space Nine had a, um, you know, a, a, a weaker time slot. When The Next Generation ended with Season 7, it was replaced with Star Trek Voyager. And Season 3 of Deep Space Nine had aired alongside Season 1 of Star Trek Voyager. Voyager took the next generation's primetime slot. And so for a lot of people, next generation was, uh, sorry, Voyager was considered the, the flagship Star Trek show, not Deep Space Nine. And the producers had the idea of trying to rectify this. And the way they had to rectify this was to shake up Deep Space Nine a bit. And the way they decided to do this was to bring on a, another fan-favourite character. And that is the character of Worf from Star Trek The Next Generation. And bring him onto Deep Space Nine as a member of the crew. Now, Michael Dorn, who plays Worf, was quite happy with this as he quite likes the character and was excited to explore new aspects of him. Now, to justify Worf being there, they also then began introducing and developing the Klingon Empire. And so Star Trek Season 4 is considered another perfect jumping on point because it's essentially where the Klingons get introduced. And I believe it's also where um, Deep Space Nine gets a new title sequence as well um, with a more bombastic opening sound. Um you know, the original soundtrack was for the opening song was quite lonely. Um, you know, a single solitary uh, brass section, um, whereas now it's a full orchestral piece, sort of indicating that the station is busier now. Now, the opening two-parter of season four is, it was originally a feature-length episode. So it was a 90-minute episode when it first premiered, and it's called The Way of the Warrior. 
essentially a large Klingon fleet arrives at Deep Space Nine, planning to expand the Klingon Empire um, to deal with the Cardassians, because it's revealed that off-screen, between Season 3 and Season 4, the Cardassian military government has been replaced in a civilian uprising. Now, obviously, certain episodes had alluded to the fact that there was a growing civilian dissident movement on Cardassia um, over the past few years. And so this could quite possibly have been a natural uh, event that was bound to happen. However, the Klingons feel that such a thing could only have happened with Dominion interference. And they believe that the civilian government on Cardassia are changelings. And so they want to invade Cardassia to deal with them. And they want the Federation, who are their allies, to come and help them. This introduces uh, a Klingon character of General Martok and also brings in Chancellor Gowron. And, you know, the Klingons are all around the station and Cisco's desperately trying to deal with them and try to, you know, sort of allay their, their fears... Meanwhile, the, the station and the crew have already been getting ready for Dominion evasion, because obviously if the Jem'Hadar do come through the wormhole, Deep Space Nine is right there. They are the guardians at the door, the first port of call. And so, Cisco decides that to deal with the Klingons, he needs a Klingon of his own. And he brings in Worf. The reason he's able to bring in Worf is because the Enterprise D has been destroyed off-screen in the movie Star Trek Generations, uh, which took place with, uh, roughly equivalent to Season 3. And Worf himself is now at a crossroads, deciding what to do. You know, should he stay in Starfleet? Should he leave? Should he seek a more spiritual Klingon path? And... Worf has had a bit of a tumultuous time. There's a lot of episodes in TNG that do kind of explore Worf's backstory and history with the Klingon High Council and, you know, matters of honour regarding his house. There are a lot of, lot of great episodes, especially the episodes uh, Sins of the Father and uh, Redemption are, are two of the best ones. Uh, Sins of the Father, Reunion and Redemption. If you watch those four episodes, because Redemption's a two-parter, you will kind of get most of Worf's backstory um, and his history with characters like Gowron. And Gowron basically says, yeah, this war's going to happen, and I want you there with me, Worf. I want you alongside me, fighting the good fight. And Worf refuses. And Gowron says, you refuse me now, and I will strip your house of all of its titles. You will be an outcast. You will never be welcome again in the Klingon Empire. To which Wolf says, well, so be it. And the Klingons go to warp. They head to Cardassia. They launch an attack on the, you know, the Cardassian Empire. Um, and... Starfleet realizes then, you know, the crew realize they need to warn the Cardassians. So, and in a really clever bit of uh, intrigue, they get Garrick to come to the wardroom in the middle of a meeting to measure Cisco for a new suit while they're discussing the Klingon invasion. So, obviously, Garrick's ears prick up and he detects everything. 
and goes and immediately tries to warn um, the Cardassian government. And he gets in touch with Dukat because Dukat, you know, saw which way the wind was blowing when the civilian uprising was coming and decided to ally with them. Of course he did. Um, And so, yeah, it's very clever. Um, Very cleverly done. And, you know, the... Dukat takes the Cardassian government. They try to meet um, the Defiant, you know, halfway. The Defiant has to cloak um, to get past the Klingon ships. Um, Worf is with them. They end up beaming the Cardassian um, government and Dukat on board. They test them all um, to find out whether they are changelings. They do blood tests on them. Um get them back to Deep Space Nine with a fleet of Klingon ships on their tail. And then that's when everything goes wrong. And this episode is brilliant. There are so many amazing character beats. There's a brilliant moment between Quark and Garrick where they're talking about how their last hope is the Federation. Um, There's a, a tremendously funny moment with Quark where he vows to kind of defend his bar. And... Odo, uh, Odo asks him, with what? And then he says, with this. And he pulls out a phaser, or what he says is a phaser, in a box. He opens the box, and Odo finds a note from Rom, where Rom says that he dismantled the phaser to fix the replicators. You know, it's, it's so, there's so many great moments in this episode. This is one of Deep Space Nine's best episodes by far. It's really well written, really well paced. Like, Worf doesn't even appear until 50 minutes into the episode, or 40 minutes at least. It's a 90-minute episode, and he doesn't appear until 40 minutes in. So he's absent for, like, most of the first half. It's really well done. And, yeah, what follows is a very large, very impressive battle sequence where the Klingon fleet attack Deep Space Nine, except this time... Deep Space Nine is ready to defend itself. It's a static target, but it has shields, phasers, torpedoes, weapons arrays. The whole station is ready to mount a defense. And it does. And it takes on a fleet of Klingon ships. You know, and there's ships blowing up left, right, and center. Shields go down. Klingons beam aboard, start fighting through soldiers, fighting Odo, fighting... Uh, they beam into Ops and end up fighting Worf, Cisco, Kira, Jadzia. Jadzia ends up taking a Batleth and like fighting off Klingon soldiers with it. Kira ends up stabbed. Um, you know, a lot of the Starfleet officers are doing the the standard Starfleet two hander fist um, attack that they always did in Star Trek. It's phenomenal. You know, Odo and Gar- uh, Odo, uh, Dukat and Garrick end up fighting side by side to protect the Cardassian government. You know, it's oh, it's a very very good episode, and a great way to to kickstart the season. And you know, it ends with the Klingon Federation peace treaty shattered. Um, the Klingons at war with Cardassia with you know, entrenching into the Cardassian Union, you know, refusing to secede their gains in Cardassian space. Um, 
and yeah, it's very and Worf ends up as a member of the crew, obviously. And and there's other great moments in this, you know. Um Worf's been dating uh, not Worf, Cisco has been dating a character called Cassidy. Um Cassidy Yates, she's a civilian starship captain. Um, so you know, a trader. She she does like um she's a cargo transporter, essentially. And her ship gets stopped by a Klingon ship outside of Bajoran space. And Cisco, you know, comes to save her. You know, and and you know, the he clashes with the Klingon ship, the Klingon captain, and Martok ends up killing the guy because he offended Cisco and brings him his blade. And says, you know, as far as you know, as the Klingons are concerned, the matter's settled. It's been a, a matter of honor, and it's done. You know, it's there's so much good stuff, and Cassidy as well was set up by um, Cisco and Cassidy were set up by Jake, which I think is really sweet. That was towards the end of season three. Uh, <laughs> some great moments between them, um, but yeah, it's a really good one. And then they follow that with another one of the best episodes, which is The Visitor. The Visitor is an is a very heartfelt episode where Cisco's been lost in time and Jake has grown up into an old man without his father. And Jake in this episode is played not only by his usual actor, Cyric Lofton, who by now was a young man, but also as an adult, he's played by Tony Todd. And it's so poignant and beautiful and very, very emotional. It's a very, very emotional episode. One of the best of Deep Space Nine by far, and a really good episode that anyone could watch without even knowing the characters, because it's just a story about a father and a son. You don't need to know anything else. In fact, I will say season four, I think, is probably the strongest season Deep Space Nine has. There's very little filler episodes in season four, or episodes that feel like filler, like they're detracting from the main plot or the main character arcs. You know, um, Bashir gets captured by a group of Jem'Hadar and asked to wean them off of their drug addiction because the Dominion use drugs to keep them, um, you know, to keep them to keep them subservient. Um, you know, uh, we learn that Dukat has an illegitimate child with a Bajoran slave woman, and he's learned that she might still be alive and takes Kira to help him rescue her. Um, you know, there's an episode called Rejoined where um, Jadzia meets one of her, f- one of the Dax symbionts previous lovers um in a new body like obviously dax is in a new body and she's khan and khan is in a new body and their body happens to be you know another young woman um similar to dax themselves but there is a law in trill society that symbionts you know joined trill trill joined with symbionts shouldn't reconnect and rejoin um with old partners they should experience new lives and new connections but the two of them fall for each other 
and it, it's a really interesting episode. Really, really interesting. Um, Nog ends up joining Starfleet Academy, and along the way, him, Quark, Rom, and Odo end up sort of trapped in 1947 Roswell, New Mexico. So it turns out the Roswell landing actually happened, and it was a group of Ferengi. Um, Kor comes back and recruits Worf and Dax to help him find a, an ancient Klingon sword. Um, there's an episode where Bashir is playing a spy program, like a James Bond-style spy program, and Garrick walks in on him, and then due to transporter shenanigans, the, you know, Cisco, Worf, O'Brien, Kira, um, and Dax end up trapped in it as well. And it's like, if any of them die in the program, like, they'll be lost forever. And then outside, like... um, Odo, Eddington, and Rom are desperately trying to save them all. It's ridiculous. And it's basically a Bond... It's just excuse to do a Bond episode. It's great. It's so much fun. Um, there's a two-parter set on Earth where it turns out that, you know, changelings have actually infiltrated Starfleet and caused Starfleet paranoia. You know, and there's an, a Starfleet admiral that's basically almost enacts a coup. And it turns out that was the original plan for the opening of the season um, until the, they got told to add the Klingons. Worf has a brother, Kern. Kern comes in because now, obviously, because the result of Worf's actions, Kern's been ostracized and he wants to die. He asks Worf to do, like, a ritual suicide on him. Um, Ducat, with his, his daughter, he's lost his family. He's lost his standing in Cardassian society. So he asks for Kira's help in regaining his rank in the Cardassian Union. And this is the episode that introduces an um, an aide of his called Damar, uh, who goes on to become a very important character later on. And, you know, Dukat and Damar and Kira end up capturing a Klingon bird of prey because the Cardassians are at war with the Klingons. Um, you know, there, there's an episode called Bar Association where Rom forms a union because he gets ill at work. You know, he forms a union of the the bar staff and the Darbo girls at Quarks to, you know, and they go on strike. <laughs> it's it's a great episode, very very funny. And then by the end of it, Rom ends up joining the Bajoran um, militia as an engineer, and he joins the engineering detail. He quits working for for Quark. Um, you know, sort of inspired in part by by Nog and also by Lita, one of the the Darbo girls who he's he's quite sweet on. Um, you know, the the best O'Brien must suffer episode takes place this season. It's called Hard Time. He ends up with experiencing twenty years of life in prison um, in an instant. It's all hollow memories, like in his head. But he experiences them, and then he returns home. Like, the sentence and the punishment has already been carried out by the time they manage to get him free. And so he has to, like, readjust to society when, you know, we see him, like, you know, he's having dinner with his family, and he's cutting parts of his food up to save them for later because he didn't know when he'd be getting fed again. Um, You know, there's an episode where... Uh, Cisco learns that Cassidy might actually be um, a marquee smuggler. And it turns out she is. 
she's been smuggling for the Marquis, and she ends up going to prison for it. But not only does she go to prison for it, we learn that Eddington is actually a member of the Marquis as well, and he's been using his position to help them. And so Eddington manages to escape, but Cassidy ends up getting arrested and sent to prison. She gets sent to a stockade for like six months. Um, you know, the Defiant end up teaming up with a group of Jem'Hadar, led by a character called Wayoon, um, to stop another rogue group of Jem'Hadar. And... Uh, you know, that's quite interesting. And Wayoon ends up being killed by his Jem'Hadar because he's a slime and a sleaze. But unfortunately, it's not the last we see of him. And then finally, the, the final episode of the season is called Broken Link. And Odo is basically losing his ability to shapeshift. Um, and as a result, is struggling to maintain a solid form. And so to deal with this, they go to, to the founders and try to sort of negotiate peace. And while at the same time this is happening, the the Cold War between the Klingon Empire and the Federation that's been building throughout this season, um, you know, the Federation and the Klingon Empire, it's been growing in the background. And at this point, Gowron is making speeches and saying he's planning to, you know, that they're on the verge of war, basically. And Odo goes back to the Founders' homeworld. Turns out the Founders have been affecting him to bring him home because they want to punish him because of the fact he killed another changeling, something that no other changeling has ever done in their entire history. Because they have something called the Great Link, where they're all linked together, um, able to share thoughts, feelings, emotions. It's described as being a very spiritual, um, although also very, very intimate, um, like it's equated to sex quite a lot, um, way of existing. And so that's something that they've been, that Odo has found quite alluring about his his people is the idea of being in the link and being linked with, with his people. Um, but yeah, because of that, there's been no murders in changeling society before, you know, Odo killing the ambassador in the anniversary was the first time it's ever happened. And so the founders want to judge him. So they do, they bring him to, um, you know, back to their homeworld, to their new homeworld, to judge him, and they take him into the link. And you know, in the link, he pleads his case, and they punish him by making him a solid. They make him human, and they leave him with his face. Odo's face is because when he first took solid form, he tried to look Bajoran. And he's always struggled with faces. Like, Odo looks the way he does because he can't form a real face. And it's established that, like, the other founders copy his sort of makeup, you know, his sort of facial appearance to identify with him when they take solid form. But they're far more capable of perfectly infiltrating. 
like they can make themselves look human, look Klingon, look Cardassian, look Romulan, etc. But they make Odo human, but they leave him with his face as a reminder of what he's lost. And they send him back to Deep Space Nine with the rest of them. That's his punishment. You know, being made human and exiled. However, when he gets back, he sees the video of Gowron, where Gowron declares that he and the Klingon Empire have invaded the Arcanist sector, an area on the Federation border, and seized the colony there. And Odo suddenly gets a flash of memory from the Link. And as a result of it, he believes that Gowron is a changeling, thereby setting the hook for the next season. It's really good. By this point, I think there are far more plot episodes related to the show. Like, if you were trying to watch the only essential episodes of Deep Space Nine, most of season four is on your list, I think, because there's a lot of good stuff here. And the inclusion of the Klingon Empire, the inclusion of the sort of the geopolitical stuff really sets the stage for for things that will happen later on. You know, it matters where the Klingon Empire is, where the Cardassian Union is, where the Romulan Empire is, you know, what state they're all in. You know, all of these races will be important. You know, everything that the Dominion is doing will be important. And it works really, really well. Like, Way of the Warrior is a fantastic start. Broken Link is a fantastic ending. But everything along the way is good as well. The worst episode this season is a Lawaxana Troy episode, or one of the Mirror Universe episodes where uh, the Mirror version of Jennifer, um, who's still alive in the Mirror Universe, she comes over and takes Jake there. Um, And that forms, like, the third of, like, a loose trilogy of Mirror Universe episodes. There is two more Mirror Universe episodes, one in Season 5 and one in Season 7, but they're not as good. Um, Those first three, uh, Crossover, Through the Looking Glass, and Shattered Mirror across Seasons 2, 3, and 4, are the best. And again, Shattered Mirror's got a really good action scene. It turns out the the Terran Resistance like stole the plans for Deep Space Nine when Smiley came over the last time. Uh, Not the plans for Deep Space Nine, the plans for the Defiant. And they've been building their own Defiant. And Jennifer basically wanted Cisco to come over because Cisco helped build the Defiant, so he knows how to fix it. Because basically every time they've powered it up, because it's a tiny little ship and it's really overpowered because it's a warship, every time they've powered it up, it's damn near shook itself apart. <laughs> you know? But yeah, this episode, this season is brilliant. There's so many great emotional moments. Like the ending of Hard Time... Um, O'Brien recounts the true story of everything that happened in his, you know, incarceration to Julian, um, you know, to Bashir, and it's heartbreaking, you know, or or what Worf has to do to, to Kern to sort of keep him safe at the end of the Sons of Moog episode, or, you know, Ducat 
losing his family because of his connection to his daughter, uh, Zial. It's... There's so much interesting stuff going on. And there's a lot of characters that get introduced here that become very important as the show goes on. You know, Zial gets introduced in this season. Damar gets introduced in this season. Um... You know, and then and then there's also other things like there's an episode called uh, Accession, where a Bajoran poet from like 300 years ago comes through the wormhole, um, claiming that he's the true emissary, and basically it turns out to be a test of faith for, um, you know, a test of faith for Cisco, um, you know, to see whether he really wants the the job of emissary because up until now he's been a bit awkward about it you know um and him kind of saying to the prophets that no he wants to be the emissary or um you know the scenes between him and cassidy where he loses her and she goes to the stockade or you know where eddington gives his reasons for leaving starfleet for the marquis there's just a lot of great episodes and a lot of great moments as well. Like there's, you know, there's the revelation that Keiko's expecting. And like I said, Keiko's taken, kind of taken the sidelines because the school ended up being shut down. Um, so O'Brien got her on a botany uh, retreat to Bajor. So she ended up going to Bajor for like a year and she, she comes back and, you know, the last time her and, O'Brien met up, one of them forgot their pill, you know, and now she's pregnant. Yeah, it's... It's very clever, and especially because um, there's a shuttle, like a runabout accident, and she's in the runabout along with Julian and Kira. And to keep Keiko ends up injured... But to keep the baby alive, Bashir has to do, you know, Starfleet magical medical science stuff to transfer the baby into Kira. Because and this was all written around the fact that basically Nanar Visitor was pregnant. <laughs> so, yeah, Keiko, uh, sorry, Kiro, Kira ends up pregnant with Keiko's baby. She ends up becoming the surrogate for Keiko, uh, while also in a relationship with Shakar, who's now one of the heads of the Bajoran government. Oh, it's a good season. And, you know, the fact the producers told them to write in the Klingons and write all this stuff in, it could have been a mess. I think it's testament to how good the writing team on Deep Space Nine are that it wasn't, and that this is probably one of the most solid seasons in Star Trek ever. So, season five of Deep Space Nine. This is where the show really starts to to graduate and evolve a lot of these ongoing plot lines. Um, you know, the there was a bit of a, a change at the last, you know, throughout season four because obviously adding the Klingons and there were things like you know the the main plan with like the changelings on Earth ended up coming a lot later. Uh, and in the season that it did, and and things like that. Um, but this is where we really start to get the 
the changes. So we start with obviously the the cliffhanger from the last season, which is where Odo thinks that Gowron is a changeling. So Odo, um, yeah, Odo, Worf, Cisco, and O'Brien all go undercover um, to a, you know a graduation ceremony for Klingon warriors um, that Gowron is going to appear at, and. You know the three uh, Odo, Cisco, and O'Brien are disguised as Klingons, and obviously Worf is helping them. There's some great moments in this episode. Um, like one of the there's a Klingon warrior boasting about how he's just killed a Federation captain by like beaming onto their their ship and uh, and and killing him with a batleth, and it enrages Cisco. So Cisco like beats the crap out of this this Klingon, but then of course has to cover for it by saying. You know, and he just yells out, laugh all you want, but don't get between me and the blood wine, <laughs> you know, and it gets a resounding cheer from the other Klingons. It's very, very clever. Um, but yeah, basically they're there. They've got, they've got a device that's going to try and revert the changeling back to normal form. However, they get captured when Martok and uh, Gowron arrive and Martok tries to appeal to them and say, yes, Gowron, I don't know if Gowron has been replaced by a changeling, but it would make sense. He's been, he's been calling for war and everything like that. Um, and so Martok kind of encourages Worf to go and challenge Gowron, which Worf does. Um, and Gowron actually turns and fights him like a Klingon, like as a matter of honor. They're clashing blades and, you know... And Martok's like, why doesn't Worf just kill him? And it's like, and that's where Odo kind of puts it together that actually Martok is the changeling. And Martok has always been a changeling, which means that even when we first meet him in Way of the Warrior, Martok was a changeling. And that is a cool twist. (laughs) A very, very cool twist. So they do that. They, um, you know, they they reveal that Martok is the changeling. Um, Martok, you know, reveals himself by attacking Odo, but in doing so, a whole room full of Klingons just pull disruptors on him and vaporize him. You know, a uh, bit of a foolish decision on on Martok's part, but you know, it ends up with the Klingons being in a sort of not going back to peace with the Federation, like the Kitama Accords are, are gone. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, the the crew is given safe travel back. Um, you know, it's revealed that Odo was left with his face by the changelings as sort of a penance. And um, Bashir says, you know, I can give you any face you want. And he's like, he's like, no, I'm going to keep this one for now. Um, there's also the reveal that Dukat has captured a Klingon bird of prey. Like, they travel into Klingon space using Dukat's but captured bird of prey. That's quite cool. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's not quite a piece that they've got with the Klingon Empire now, but it's not quite open warfare anymore. Although there is a couple more episodes later on this season which will have more out-and-out warfare, like episode four, which is Nor the Battle to the Strong, which sees Jake and Bashir sort of stuck on the front lines. It's a very, very good Jake episode. Jake doesn't get a lot of good focus episodes, but that particular one is is one of his best. Um, 
and unlike The Visitor, where, you know, Jake gets replaced, Cyric Lofton, who plays Jake, gets replaced by Tony Todd halfway through, this one is focused on Cyric Lofton the entire time, and he sees, like, the true horrors of war. You know, Jake at this point is wanting to be a reporter and a writer. He's, you know, so he ends up seeing it as an opportunity, but he gets, you know, he's still a child. He's still uh, a young teenager. I think Jake's only 15, 16. Uh, no, 16, 17 at this point. So he's still a young man and clearly terrified by a lot of what he's seeing. There's uh, an episode called The Ship where they capture a Jem'Hadar starship um, and they clash with the Dominion. The Dominion, uh, like a Vorta and her Jem'Hadar arrive and she's desperate to try and get the ship back. But... Oh, Cisco's claimed it as like squatters, you know, salvage rights because it was a crash ship. Turns out the Jem'Hadar and the Vorta were actually after a uh, a changeling that was on the ship. And Cisco says, "If you'd have just told me, I'd have let you have the changeling. All I wanted was the ship." And you know, it's a bit bittersweet. Like the two forces just cannot communicate. Um, there's an episode called Looking for Parmark in All the Wrong Places, which features the return of Grilka. She comes back to the station. Uh, Quark then tries to woo her. Um, Worf also is very interested in wooing her and sort of does it vicariously through Quark and like shows him the proper Klingon way to woo someone like Grilka. Because obviously Worf can't woo her because Worf has been discredited um, by the Klingon Empire. And so... Um, it's a very funny episode, lots of great comedy moments. Ends up with um, Quark and Grilka hooking up and Jadzia and Worf hooking up and all four of them ending up in sickbay <laughs> due to various um, sexually related injuries. <laughs> Apparently Klingons like the rough stuff. <laughs> so yeah, that's quite funny. Um there's a very good episode that features Keiko quite a lot called The Assignment, um, where Keiko returns from Bajor and she's been possessed by a being called a Parwraith. Now, the Parwraiths are kind of like the demons to the prophets. So if the prophets are the gods, the Parwraiths are the demons, the devils. And she has been possessed by one and she assigns O'Brien to do something, to like tinker with stuff on the station. And O'Brien tries doing it all himself and then gets overwhelmed. And meanwhile, this, this par wraith that's possessing Keiko, you know, looks like Keiko outwardly, but it's very obviously communicating the, the true malice and intentions behind her. Like, you know, she hurts Molly while brushing her hair and just to try and sort of twist the knife into O'Brien a bit more, it just saying, you know, look how vulnerable you and your family are with all this. And so O'Brien ends up um, getting Rom to help him. Rom at this point is um, obviously working for the Bajoran militia as an engineer. Um, Rom helps him, but Rom actually realises that what they're doing is turning Deep Space Nine into basically uh, a deflector dish that could disrupt the wormhole. And he's like, why are we trying to kill the wormhole aliens? 
and that's when O'Brien realizes exactly what's going on and kind of looks at the the story of the Par Wraiths and everything like that. And, you know, obviously eventually defeats the Par Wraith holding Keiko. Um and Rom ends up getting arrested for it and everything is just like refusing to talk. It, it's a great little episode. It's a nice one for Rom. It shows the um you just how loyal Rom is and how eager he is to please um the chief and like i said it's a great one for keiko because rosalind chow probably gets more to do in this episode than she's had to do in any of her other appearances she just gave birth to molly in disaster in next generation so yeah great little episode um there's also the i think it was the 30th anniversary of star trek um the special episode Trials and Tribulations, which sees the Defiant end up time-travelling back to um, the original series, where they interact with the crew of the Enterprise during the episode um, The Trouble with Tribbles, right? Which is obviously a classic, seminal episode, one of the funniest episodes of the original series. You've got the Tribbles everywhere, they're eating all the grain on the station, just multiplying like rabbits. Um, and yeah, the crew end up involved in that because a Klingon spy, in fact, the same Klingon spy from that episode, who was obviously now older, um, steals the Bajoran Orb of Time to go back and like undo his greatest failure. <laughs> Basically, he put a bomb on a Tribble, and they have to try and hunt down and find out, find this Tribble. And it's it's essentially an excuse for the crew to be in the classic uniforms and, um, you know, digitally added into the background of footage and uh, everything like that. But it's so much fun. It's very fun, very silly. Um, it was one of two episodes created for this anniversary. The other one was the Voyager episode Flashback. I think this one is by far the better of the two, although I do like Flashback as well. Um, yeah, one of the best episodes, um, followed by one of the worst episodes, which is called Let He Who Is Without Sin, um, which is takes place on Riser. Um, and features Jadzia and Worf uh, on Riser, which is obviously the Federation's holiday planet, and Worf ends up getting caught it up in uh, yeah, some sort of uh, planetary rebellion thing. It's a bit silly. Um, there's also Things Past, which is a very, very good episode for Odo. Um, the crew end up sort of time-travelled back to um to the time of the occupation and you know they it's it's Garrick, Jadzia, Cisco and Bashir I think actually it might not be Bashir definitely Cisco, Dax and Garrick and they believe they are well to everyone else they present as three Bajorans four Bajorans with Odo and Odo recognizes their names, and it turns out it's because these Bajorans were killed um, for a crime that he thought they committed, and then later learned they didn't. And it turns out he was the one that ordered their execution, and he feels guilty about it. 
and he was reminiscing on it when the runabout got hit by like some sort of cosmic space disaster. And it turns out that basically Odo linked them. Like in the same way as the Great Link, he kind of like linked their minds to relive these memories. So that's a very clever one. Um, and sort of introduces the idea that maybe Odo isn't quite as solid as he thinks at this point. Um, you then, this then, uh, that plotline then expands in a later episode called The Begotten, where Odo finds an infant changeling. And with the help of Maura Pol, who was the Bajoran scientist who studied Odo when he was younger, he tries to learn what he can about this changeling and sort of help it develop in the same way. Although using a lot more, uh, a lot kinder methods than the one that Maura Pol used on him. Maura, Maura Pol was obviously being encouraged to get results by the Cardassians. Um it's a good one to let the two characters kind of interact. They've interacted before more this is like Mora's second appearance in Deep Space Nine, I think. Um, and it's some, some good development between the two of them. But at the end of the episode, the changeling, the infant changeling dying bonds with Odo. And what this does is make Odo a shapeshifter again. Odo is now again a changeling. In exactly the same way he was before. Um, very good little episode. Uh, this episode also features um, Kira giving birth to the O'Brien's baby, um, who is called Kiriyoshi. He's 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 lovely, lovely, cute little baby. Um, there's also some some very interesting. I can't remember exactly which episode it is. It might be looking for Parmark in all the wrong places again. Um, Kira ends up moving in with the O'Brien's. And, you know, she's moving in because they're missing, you know, Keiko's missing things in the development, like when the baby first started kicking. Um, but what happens is this ends up becoming really uncomfortable for Keiko and uh, Miles because they start, uh, not Keiko, uh, Kira and Miles, because they start getting all these kind of attraction feelings and, and feeling close. And obviously it starts weirding them both out. Um and yeah, it, it's quite sweet. It's very, you know, it's one of those where I look at it um, as a polyamorous person and go, just be poly. It'd be a lot easier. There's clearly feelings there. There's clearly, you know, intention there, at least at this point. Just just indulge. But um, hey-ho, it was a different time. <laughs> There's also, um, at around this point, there's the episode Rapture, um, where Deep Space Nine gradually changes its uniforms to match the movie style of uniform that was around at the time, because um, obviously the Next Generation era movies were airing around this point. And, you know, they've got the grey shoulder pads on top of the black suit, but with their collar underneath taking on their division colours, so red, gold, and green. Um, very nice uniforms. They're probably some of my favourite uniforms from this era of Star Trek. Um, in fact, probably some of my favourite 
Star Trek uniforms overall. The episode Rapture almost sees Bajor join the Federation, but Cisco has a very cryptic vision from the prophets. He starts getting loads of visions, like really quickly. Um, but to the point that they're almost killing him, and Jake has to like authorize a surgery to save Cisco's life um, because of how much damage they're doing to his body. But basically, he stops Bajor joining the Federation because he has this vision of locusts coming from the wormhole and attacking Bajor. But before they can attack Bajor, they turn and head to Cardassia. All very cryptic and leading to something that comes up very soon. We also see the return of Michael Eddington this season in For the Uniform. Uh, obviously, he's now working for the Marquis, and Cisco is determined to capture him. The episode leans heavily on um, Les Miserables, um, so, um, to the point that Eddington actually sees himself as Valjean and refers to Cisco as Javert. Um, so you see Cisco going to some very, very dark places to kind of get um, Eddington to surrender. Very dark. Um, but it actually works. Eddington ends up being captured. By this point as well, Nog has now returned to the station as a cadet. Um, and you see him and Jake trying to live together. You see him trying to... Um, you know, get the respect of officers and things like that, because he's, he's doing, like, a placement now on Deep Space Nine. It's very cool. Um, But then we get... Oh, oh, we get the two big episodes this season. It's a two-parter. It's In Purgatory's Shadow and By Inferno's Light. Now, in this episode... um. Garrick receives a signal from the Gamma Quadrant suggesting that Tain is still alive. Now, Tain was obviously lost during the Tal Shiar Obsidian Order attack on the Dominion homeworld. So, it suggests that there are survivors out there. Worf and Garrick take a runabout um, to go and explore and find out. They end up getting captured... And spend time and get sent to a Dominion prison camp inside the Gamma Quadrant. While at this prison camp, they encounter General Martok, um, as well as Dr. Bashir. And here's the interesting bit. By this point, the crew have been wearing the new uniforms for some time. Some uh, quite a few episodes by this point. Okay. Bashir is in the old style uniform. And also Martok says that him and Worf have never met, suggesting that this is the first time we are meeting the original Martok, and that Bashir has been replaced by a changeling for some time. And this is just like a great twist. Oh, and also Tain is there as well. Tain is there and he is dying. Essentially, Tain tried to send a signal to Garrick to to get help. And basically all these people have the people at this prison camp have been replaced. Um, meanwhile, there's other things going on on the station. Um, 
Ducat is there, sort of interacting, trying to get Zial off of the station. And then a Dominion fleet comes through the wormhole. Um, Ducat's ship and the Defiant both go out to meet them. And Ducat, having been unsuccessful in trying to convince Zial to leave the station, turns and joins the Dominion fleet. And they head to Cardassia. Cardassia, under Golducat, has declared itself an ally of the Dominion. It has sworn its fealty to the Dominion. The Dominion now have a foothold in the Alpha Quadrant with the Cardassian Empire. And obviously this prompts the Klingons to um, reactivate the Kitama Accords with the Federation much to Gowron's ire. Um, but, you know, Gowron and his fleet turn up at Deep Space Nine, along with some Starfleet admirals, um, Cisco kind of helping to to link them all, a Romulan fleet turn up as well. Meanwhile, the changeling impersonating Bashir is building a bomb to try and destroy the Bajoran sun and take out, like, a large chunk of this fleet all at once. Um, and and essentially leave the leave the wormhole completely unguarded because it would take out Deep Space Nine as well as well as Bajor. <sighs> Meanwhile, on the uh, prison colony, Garrick, uh, while dealing with his own claustrophobia, tries to um, continue work on. Yeah, he tries to continue work on the. The signal as Tane dies um, to try and link to the runabout to beam them all away. Um, Worf, meanwhile, gets uh, tasked with fighting Jem'Hadar after Jem'Hadar after Jem'Hadar with Martok kind of coaching him. Martok is missing an eye as well, and he reveals that the Jem'Hadar first on this station actually took it from him. Basically, Martok is old and he's been sort of been used for the Jem'Hadar training. Now Worf is there, and is a much younger Klingon than he. Worf is the one being used. It's very grim, um, but does a lot to show just how badass Worf is, and how amazing Martok is. Martok is probably one of my favourite Klingons in Star Trek ever. I think he's so quintessentially Klingon. <laughs> you know, he's just, he's just a warrior. He... You know, but, you know, the whole idea of the the warrior, the honourable Klingon, I think is Martok personifies that quite well. Um, obviously, they managed to succeed. They managed to get the runabout. They managed to send a signal to Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine learns the truth about Mashia. The Defiant goes and destroys um, the runabout before it can destroy the Bajoran sun. And they save the day. And obviously, they all learn everything that was going to happen. Um, Gowron appoints Martok to Deep Space Nine as a permanent Klingon presence on the station, um, which I think is great as well, because it means we get to see more of this character. Um, and this is only sort of around episode 14 and 15, so there's still quite a bit of the series left. You know, there's 26 episodes in, in this season. Um and there's some interesting moments, like we get um, there's an episode called Ties of Blood and Water, 
um, where uh, Ties of Blood and Water sees uh, Takeni Gamore, the um, Cardassian officer that they made Kira think was his daughter, um, you know, to try and rumble him because he had links to the civilian movement. You know, he starts dying and he comes to reveal his secrets to Kira because he still doesn't know where his actual daughter is. So he has to reveal his secrets to someone. Like, this is like a Cardassian tradition. And Wayun and Dukat turn up to try and prevent it from happening because Wayun is still alive. There's another... Turns out the Vorta are cloned. And so Wayun now becomes the the main Vorta operative. Um, Quark's cousin... Uh, offers him a job as a weapons dealer because uh, as a result of an episode in the previous season called Body Parts, Quark lost his business license uh, um, because he tangled with Brunt and lost his business license. And so he, um, you know, is desperate for money and is kind of, you know, to get back in with Ferengi society. You know, his cousin kind of offers him a job. Um there's Ferengi love songs where it's revealed that the Grand Negus Zek has fallen for Moogie, uh, which is, you know, one of the best Ferengi episodes. Very, very funny one. Um, there's an episode called Soldiers of the Empire where Martok gets his own ship and basically runs a mission um, on this ship called the Rataran with Worf as his uh, first officer and Dax with him as well. Um there's Blaze of Glory, which features, um, obviously, the Dominion, now they've joined with the Cardassians, are exterminating the Marquis. So Cisco and Eddington go behind the lines to try and save some of the last Marquis members. And obviously, this leads to Eddington's glorious death against the Dominion. Um, you know, he gets to go out like a hero. It's quite cool. Um, but then the the season comes to a close with the episodes In the Cards and Call to Arms. In In the Cards, um, while there's a quite satisfying uh, A-plot involving Jake just trying to do something nice for his father, um, there's a, a B-plot where Bajor ends up negotiating a non-aggression pact with the Dominion, um, and this is done on the advisement of Cisco. Because in Call to Arms, everything comes to a head. And the to try and prevent more Dominion reinforcements coming to Cardassia, the Federation decides to mine the wormhole. They mine the entrance to the wormhole. They lay a, a self-replicating, cloaked minefield, helped designed by Rom, so Rom helps to design them, while at the same time he's he's dealing with Lita trying to move in. Um, so he's like coming up with ideas while also crying about the fact that Lita's going to take up all of his closet space. Very funny, because <laughs> yeah, Rom and Lita, the Darbo girl, have gotten involved. It's it's lovely, um, and yeah, it's. It's a very clever premise because obviously they're laying the mines and obviously this angers the Dominion. Wayun says, remove the mines or we will take this station from you and remove them ourselves. And obviously they continue laying the minefield. 
the Jem'Hadar and, you know, Dukat and Wayun lead an attack against Deep Space Nine, and they do manage to take the station. So a com- it's it's almost like this this very very dramatic follow up to the big space battle in Way of the Warrior, because a Dominion fleet comes and attacks Deep Space Nine, and our crew, you know, our, our main characters are forced to leave. So Cisco, Worf, Martok, Nog, O'Brien, Bashir, Garrick, they all have to leave the station. Kira and Odo stay behind. They destroy a whole lot of the computer systems. Jake remains behind in hiding. Worf goes with Martok um, rather than go on to the Defiant. And all these ships leave. And the Defiant ends up joining a, a massive Federation fleet. Um, you know, as, as this war between the Federation and the Dominion has finally hit. But there's one final twist. Dukat comes onto the station, goes into Cisco's office, and sees Cisco has left his baseball on his desk. Dukat picks it up and realizes what it means. Cisco has every intention of coming back. So, season six. Um, season six starts with a six-part episode focusing on the the aftermath almost of uh, Call to Arms by which we get a six-part episode where the crew away from Deep Space Nine has to try and come together and and to retake the station. And this six-parter features a lot of the recurring cast members as well. Um, so there's three separate plot lines going on. First of all, um, Admiral Ross appoints Cisco as his attaché, which essentially gives um, command of the Defiant to Dax. Um but first of all, they, they undertake a mission using the captured Jem'Hadar ship um, to destroy a Ketracel White facility. Ketracel White being the drug that the Jem'Hadar are addicted to, um, which is used to control them by the founders. Garrick joins up with them as, as part of their crew on the Defiant, as does Nog. Um, the ship ends up getting destroyed and lost behind the lines. Um, and they crash land on this planet where they interact with a load of Jem'Hadar. They end up being saved um, and capturing this this Jem'Hadar called Keevan. Well, not Jem'Hadar, sorry, a Vorta called Keevan. Um, in quite a quite a dark story where they end up having to almost mercilessly slaughter. Uh, a group of Jem'Hadar warriors, despite the the respect that Cisco and the the Jem'Hadar leader Ametaclan, no Ramataclan, have for each other. Um, but yeah, the following that, we then have, like I said, scenes with um, Jadzia leading the crew on the Defiant. Um, 
taking the role of captain despite not getting the rank. Um, we also see Worf and Martok on their ship and uh, one of their new recruits who turns out to be Alexander, uh, Worf's son, um, who is a character that was kind of often maligned on The Next Generation, um, but now is old enough to to be a Klingon warrior. And there's a lot of... Yeah, there's there's a lot of ups and downs in their story. You know, Worf is a bit of a deadbeat dad um, when it comes to Alexander. Um, but this episode ends in quite a nice way where Alexander can now make his own way um, among the Klingon Empire, which is quite cool. I like that. Um, but yeah, there's a two-parter that ends this as part of a six-parter arc called uh, Favor the Bold and Sacrifice of Angels, where a fleet of 600 Starfleet ships tries to break through the Dominion lines to recapture Deep Space Nine. Because on Deep Space Nine, Dukat, Wayun, Damar, and um, the female founder are in the process of trying to dismantle the minefield. Bear in mind that the first part of the six-parter, Time to Stand, picks up six months after. We're six months into the war, and the Federation has been losing on every front. Like, the last shot of a call to arms is the Defiant and the Rataran joining up with this large fleet and, you know, sort of heading further into space. The opening shot of A Time to Stand is this battered, half-destroyed fleet, you know, battle-damaged, limping home. And, yeah, it's... It's not the war has not been going well for the Federation, and like Bashir at this point has been revealed to be genetically modified, and so is using his intelligence because he he doesn't need to hide it anymore. So people are asking him, you know, you know, what's their rate of survival, and he's like, not good, <laughs> you know. But yeah, meanwhile on the station, um, Kira has been going on with her day to day business until a. Vedic publicly commits suicide and the death of this Vedic kind of prompts her to take a more active stand against the Dominion because she's looking at herself in the mirror and struggling to to sort of stand herself. You know, she's getting her, her drink handed to her in the morning by a Cardassian officer and, and things like that. And she's realising she's become something she's despised. So her, Odo, Quark, Rom, Lita, and Zial, who is also back on the station at this point, um, you know, she's been brought back by Ducat, you know, they work together. And they work together as a resistance to try and undermine... Oh, and Jake as well, because Jake's with them. Uh, to try and undermine the Dominion efforts. But in doing so... In doing so, Odo finds himself being manipulated by the female founder. Um, you know, so there's that aspect of it. 
Um, and that leads him to to jeopardize them because obviously we know how desperate Odo is for the connection with the founders, and there is this this very strong connection and link between him and the female founder. And so it clouds his judgment and you know renders him quite poor in some respects. So yeah, there's that whole aspect going on. There's also then they try and sabotage, you know, the Dominion efforts to disable the mines, and they end up getting caught. And then Damar plans to execute them, and everything just kind of goes wrong. And then in Sacrifice of Angels, everything comes to a head. You know, the Federation and the Dominion fleets clash in this huge battle. The Klingons come to help at the last minute. And only one ship makes it through the lines, the Defiant. So the Defiant, headed up by Cisco, is rushing on to Deep Space Nine to try and get there in time before the minefield is disabled. They make it just as the minefield has been disabled, and the wormhole opens up with the Dominion fleet en route. Cisco orders the Defiant straight into the wormhole. And while in there, he pleads with the wormhole aliens, with the prophets, and asks them to intervene. Because if they don't intervene, they claim to be of Bajor. And if they don't intervene, Bajor will be destroyed. Right? And it works, and they remove the fleet from the wormhole. A fleet of like 1,400 Jem'Hadar ships. And they just like remove them from the wormhole. They're gone. The Defiant comes out through the wormhole, and nothing else follows them. Wayun panics. The Founder panics. The Jem'Hadar flee. Um, you know, the, the Dominion forces flee. Damar goes with them. Damar tries to plead with Dukat to come with him. Dukat kind of has like a whole blue screen of death moment, you know, um, being like, you know, undone at the point of triumph. Um, you know, he tries to plead with Zial to come with him. Zial reveals that she helped, um, helped the resistance get out of prison. And that she's betrayed her father. This leads Dukat, uh, sorry, Damar to kill her. And she dies in Dukat's arms. And of course, yeah, that just makes Dukat's mental state even worse. And he just collapses. And is then captured by the Starfleet crew when they take the station. And yeah, the Dominion beat a retreat to Cardassian space. And Deep Space Nine, once again, belongs to the Federation. And they celebrate with the next episode, which is You Are Cordially Invited, which sees uh, Dax and Worf finally get married, um, which is a great little episode and a great way to sort of serve as an epilogue to quite a high drama introduction to the series. Um, so, yeah, very good. Very, very good. As Series 6 goes on, it starts to unleash some of the best episodes of Deep Space Nine. Um, 
and it just takes some time but there's a lot of interesting ideas that come about um for starters there's um an issue an, an episode where four other genetically enhanced um uh, people from the Federation sort of come onto Deep Space Nine to work with Bashir, and their genetic manipulations have left their have left them almost brain damaged in some respects. Um, you know, one of them's very hyperactive, one of them's hypersexual, one of them is kind of completely comatose, one of them is childlike, but they are all ridiculously intelligent and you know, Bashir is able to sort of use them to sort of analyze war data. And they sort of help him realize that actually the Federation might lose this war unless things change. Um, there's an episode called The Magnificent Ferengi where Moogie ends up captured. Uh, and so Zek tasks Quark and Rom and all the rest of them with getting her back. So you end up with seven, you know, Quark, Rom, Nog, Quark's cousin Gala um brunt and a couple of others and they basically do a magnificent seven <laughs> to try and take keevan and swap him for moogie and this episode also features iggy pop as a water which is one of the things it's most notable for it's very funny keevan ends up dead um, and they try and puppet his corpse. It all goes wrong. <laughs> it's, yeah, a, again, a comedy episode, quite funny. A lot of good stuff going on. Um, there's the episode Waltz, where which is essentially a two-hander between Ducat and Cisco. Um, you know, Cisco is riding with Ducat when he's being taken back to Federation space to serve a, a prison sentence. And the two of them crash. The, the, the whole ship crashes and they end up um, stuck on a planetoid and Cisco is wounded and sort of at Ducat's mercy. And Ducat is losing his mind. Like ghostly apparitions of like Kira, Wayun, Damar all kind of appear just taunting him taunting everything that he's become everything that he's done the fact he's always seen himself as the good guy and he's never been appreciated and everyone just kind of turns on him very very good episode brilliant acting job from marco limo as skull ducat as you just watch ducat just completely unravel you know ducat's been one of those characters that <laughs> People have looked at him and seen like heroic qualities in certain episodes. And there's there's definitely some episodes like The Marquis or Defiant, which sort of ally him more with our heroes or or civil defense as well, where he's kind of he's on the side of our heroes, but it's always kind of done as sort of circumstance. He's not a hero. He's he's the person who used to run the occupation. You know, he's a Nazi figure. You should not respect or like Gul Dukat. And Waltz, I think, just kind of exemplifies just how deranged um, Dukat is. And it's one of my favourite episodes for that. Um, you know, there's an episode called Inquisition, which 
features introduces the idea of section 31 which is a sort of secretive element inside starfleet essentially a rogue element um that is trying to preserve federation security and they interrogate Bashir um because of obviously everything that he's gone through the fact he's been revealed as um genetically modified how he worked with the you know the other genetically modified group and how they almost caused the federation to surrender how um you know he was replaced by a changeling and yeah section 31 the operative that leads them sloan he's kind of made it quite clear that he caught kind of considers bashir recruited um very very interesting concept of an episode um there's an episode called the reckoning where a par wraith takes control of i think the the par wraith and a prophet released by this ancient bajoran tablet one of them controls kira the other one controls jake and they cause a battle which almost destroys the station um so yeah that one's pretty dark um you know i'm pretty pretty important because it kind of suggests that there is this big fight coming between the par wraiths and um the prophets as well as well as everything that's going on like the actual war between the federation and the dominion isn't everything that's happening in the galaxy right now isn't the everything that's happening around bajor right now there's more important stuff going on and you know it's the second big exploration of the par wraiths and that's gonna it's gonna go on that's gonna we're gonna see more of them um you know there's a couple of episodes like um honor among thieves which sees uh o'brien infiltrating the orion syndicate um you know it's, it's essentially goes undercover as a, a in a crime syndicate um there's an episode where nog and jake end up on a ship behind the lines which has basically been crewed by cadets because their officers ended up getting killed um there's also a very poorly aged episode called profit and lace where quark has to have um enough surgery to to pose as a ferengi female um to sort of prove that ferengi females can be good at business not a particularly great episode I get the concept that they were going for, but I don't think it works as a, as a particularly great episode. There's there's an episode called One Little Ship where a runabout ends up getting shrunk and flies around the interior of the Defiant as the Defiant is captured by Jem'Hadar. So yeah, there's, there's some episodes here that are not great. However, two of Deep Space Nine's very best episodes i think take place this season and these episodes i quite often see in the top of a lot of people's uh favorite star trek episode ever lists and in fact if if people are say people aren't particularly deep space nine fans i think most people would agree that these two episodes especially are worth talking about the first one uh, episode 13 of the season is Far Beyond the Stars. Far Beyond the Stars sees Cisco finding himself experiencing the life of Benny Russell. Benny Russell is a black 
science fiction writer working in the 50s. So he's a black 1950s science fiction writer. 1950s, 1960s science fiction writer. And Benny Russell comes up with the idea of Deep Space Nine. A space station out in the stars commanded by a black man. And obviously this is, you know, very clearly a reference to everything that is going on in the era of America in which he finds himself, you know. And throughout this episode, we see every other character taking on, you know, all the other main characters, main actors taking on a new role. So he works with the counterparts for... Uh, Kira, O'Brien, Quark, Jadzia, Bashir. Um, you know, their sketch artist is the counterpart of Martok. Um, there's two police officers who are the counterparts of Dukat and Wayun, who, you know, sort of run the beat in, you know, this little, the black neighborhood in which he finds himself. There is um, a local pastor who is the counterpart of his father, Joseph. Um, who we've met a few times, uh, played by Brock Peters. There is a a young boy who is played by the counterpart of Jake. You know, no relation to Benny, but he is a young black boy um, that Benny is quite close to. You know, there's a oh one of his friends who works in a cafe who's the equivalent of Cassidy. There is a a baseball star who comes into the cafe who is the equivalent of Michael Dawn. Uh, you know, Wharf. And, you know, Benny interacts with all of them. Jake ends up being, Jake's counterpart, sorry, ends up being killed um, in a bit of racially motivated police violence, um, which leads to, to Benny being beaten as well. And, you know, it's it's very dark. And it's it's not just dark for, like, it's, it's mainly worse for Benny, but, like, even the two women that work at this magazine have to kind of keep themselves hidden, because stories written by women aren't really appreciated. They have to use pseudonyms and things like that. Uh, and people can't know that Benny Russell is a black man. And Benny fights to have his story, his Star Trek, his Deep Space Nine story, put in the magazine. And he comes back to the office towards the final final scenes of the episode after his his police beating, and he's very badly wounded, and he's expecting to see, you know, that that his story has been published, only to find out that the editor had the entire run pulped, and Benny proceeds to break down in one of the most poignant scenes that I think Star Trek has ever put to film of you know this this black man saying that things can be better and that you know this future that he sees is real and it's incredible powerhouse episode absolute brilliant performance from avery brooks who also directed the episode as well um like by by this point a lot of the episodes actors were directing episodes and this was one that when the script came up they knew they wanted Avery to direct it 
they wanted Avery Brooks to direct it, even though he wasn't the scheduled director because directors were kind of drawn lots. They didn't necessarily get to choose what episodes they directed. But in this one, Ira Stephen Bear, the showrunner, said no he has to direct this episode and I think it was a great choice and like I said it's one of the best Deep Space Nine episodes ever put to film one of the best Star Trek episodes ever put to film it's absolutely amazing um the second powerhouse episode this season is In the Pale Moonlight uh which is episode 19 In the Pale Moonlight begins with um It begins with Cisco doing a captain's log after the events of what's happened. Um, and he's clearly been shaken by whatever's taken place. We gradually learn that Cisco, with the help of Garrick, conspired to bring the Romulans into the war on the side of the Federation and Klingons. Because the Federation and the Klingons aren't necessarily losing, but they are having significant casualties and it's getting to the point where it is bad for morale he says there's not a single day where someone doesn't know someone on those casualty lists that he keeps publishing every week and it's it's getting to him and he brings in Garrick to try and help him bring the Romulans into the war and Garrick does it by manipulating so much because it's Garrick and he manipulates to bring a Romulan senator onto the station to present him with a faked recording of Wayun and Damar discussing uh, attacking the Romulans once the Federation and the Klingons have been defeated because the Romulans have a non-aggression pact with the Dominion in the same way that Bajor does but it turns out that the Romulan senator has found that the the evidence presented to him is fake. And as he heads back to Romulus, Cisco is thinking, oh, well, that's it. The plan's undone. Only to learn that his, his shuttle has been destroyed. Now, the Romulan senator wasn't supposed to be coming to Deep Space Nine. That was a secret. His last place before he came to Deep Space Nine was a Dominion colony. And so the Romulans will now believe that the Dominion have assassinated a Romulan senator and they will find a damaged, forged recording showing plans to attack Romulus. And any uh, imperfections in the forgery will now look like damage from the explosion. The Romulans will enter the war. It is a brilliant episode for both Cisco and Garrick. Garrick has some of his best writing in this episode, and Garrick is always phenomenally written. And it's one of those episodes that, as you watch it again, when you know the twists and the turns in it, you realise how much Garrick planned this all along. Like, this was all... what, What the result of the episode is, was always Garrick's plan. From the minute Cisco approached him. And it's so well done. And, you know, Cisco at the end realises that he can live with it. The decisions that have been made, he can live with it. And he deletes the entire personal log. Absolutely sublime. I I should add, there's one other great uh, episode as well, just before I... um, 
come to the the serious conclusion, um, which is his way. I've seen a lot of people sort of negatively disparage this episode. Uh, it start, it's the first episode that features the new recurring character of Vic Fontaine, played by lounge singer James Darren. Um, I really like Vic Fontaine. I think he's a lot of fun. He goes on to have one of my favourite appearances, uh, two of my favourite appearances in season seven. Um, but essentially... Uh, Julian has got a friend named Felix who creates like bespoke holodeck programs. Vic is aware that he is a holodeck program and his holodeck program is set in like a 1960s, um, like a swinging 60s um, Las Vegas lounge. And actually 60s or 30s, might be 30s. But, you know, anyway, like a, a popular lounge and he is a lounge singer. Uh, actually, no, I think it must be 60s because he's singing songs by like the Rat Pack. So, yeah, 50s, 60s. Um, and yeah, his, his whole thing is that, you know, he's quite interesting. He helps Cisco, uh, sorry, not Cisco, Odo and Kira to get together. And the final scenes of the episode where they get together and they kiss for the first time, absolutely lovely, beautiful. Um, very emotional, very charming, and just with the usual passion from the two of them. Um, yeah, but the final episode of the season is called Tears of the Prophets, and this is one of the more heartbreaking ones. Basically, Terry Farrell, who played Jadzia Dax, um, wanted to step down from a main cast member so that she could explore some more offers. You know, she was a, she's a young, good looking, talented woman who was getting a lot of uh, interest in films and television. She wanted to try and explore some of those other avenues and do less on Star Trek. So she wanted to not necessarily leave the show, but maybe tone her role down and become one of the recurring characters, which would be easy enough to do. You give the character a promotion, you send the character out to do other things, etc. It's really easily done, especially on Deep Space Nine, which has this large recurring cast anyway. You know, d characters like Nog, Martok, Garrick, um, Rom, Lita, Cassidy, all these characters who keep coming in and out of the show all the time. However, um, the overall producer of Star Trek, Rick Berman, um, apparently really clashed with Terry Farrell over this, and it led to um, her essentially being fired and this episode is the result because in this episode um, while the Defiant leads a Federation fleet to stake a massive claim in the Chintoka system against the Cardassian Empire um, you know their first real push into Cardassian, Cardassian space um, Dukat empowered by the Par Wraiths comes onto Deep Space Nine kills Jadzia and unleashes the Par Wraiths into the into the orb, which means that the Par Wraiths are now in the Celestial Temple. As a result, the wormhole collapses, Dax is dead, Cisco leaves the station. So yeah, the opening of season seven, Cisco has left the station. Not only has he left, but remember when he left and left his baseball there for Ducat to find. 
At the end of series six, Kira comes into his office and sees that he's taken the baseball with him. So Cisco is left and doesn't know if he's going to come back. This starts the opening two-parter, which is images, image in the sand and shadows and symbols. And this episode serves to deal with Cisco's crisis of faith having lost the prophets and lost his best friend by also bringing back a new Dax. Because for season seven, Nicole DeBoer was added as uh, Esri Dax. Esri is a very different character to Jadzia. She's much younger. Um, and she was bonded to the Dax symbiote um, sort of in an emergency. Um, the Dax symbiont started taking a turn for the worst um, on the way back to Trill, and it needed to bond with a Trill. Esri was the only Trill on board. And so this young girl who wasn't prepared for joining and is only an ensign when the series starts has now got 300 life, you know, 300 years of life experience thrust upon her as the new Dax. She's a very interesting character. I think a lot of people are quite harsh on Esri because obviously she's not Jadzia. And Jadzia was a very beloved character. And don't get me wrong, I love Jadzia as well. But I do think Esri works quite well as a character in her own right. And I think it does her a disservice to compare her to Jadzia because obviously she's a poor imitation of Jadzia. But taken as a character in her own right, I quite like Esri. There's a lot about her that I find quite charming. Um, she's very obviously young and uncomfortable and sort of thrust in at the deep end. But yeah, I quite like her. Um, she ends up going with... Um, Cisco and Jake and I believe their father Joseph comes with them as well and they go to a planet where Cisco finds the orb of the emissary he's being led there by his own visions with the prophets and these visions include him seeing himself once again as Benny Russell um Benny now is locked in a asylum and he's scrawling his story for Deep Space Nine on the walls and being encouraged to paint over it by um, an orderly, a physician, I think, at the at this mental asylum, who is played by um, Corey Briggs, the same actor who plays Damar. So Damar's counterpart within this vision. And, you know, it's, it's the, the point where he's like, you know, as he's about to find this orb, is this point where he's being forced, Benny is being forced to choose between the pencil to keep writing his stories or the paint to paint over the walls. Um, it's really good. <laughs> There's a lot of good moments. Not quite as good as the original Far Beyond the Stars, but interesting to see that, you know, the the orb experience that he had, uh, sorry, the, the experience that the Prophet sent him on there is still playing a factor in his in his journey so yeah um cisco ends up coming back to the station the wormhole opens up again um meanwhile on the station kira is clashing with um 
the Romulan representative who's been assigned to the station. Her name is Kretak, um, and he's Kira clashes with her because uh, the Romulans have started building a base on one of the Bajoran moons, Derna. Um, and obviously this is causing issues between the Bajoran government. So it puts a lot of tension into the alliance between the Bajoran and the Romulans, which could almost jeopardise the entire alliance against the Dominion. So yeah, that's very interesting. Um, but yeah, Cisco comes back, Esri comes with him and joins the station's crew. She's not a science officer, as Jadzia was. Instead, she is a counsellor. Um, and she was only a trainee counsellor. So the episode after Image sees her sort of exploring herself while also working with Garrick. Garrick is um, being hit by claustrophobic attacks. Essentially, Garrick is having guilt over his actions. He's been working for Starfleet Intelligence, helping them decrypt a lot of Cardassian um, transcriptions and, and messages. And basically, he feels like a traitor to his own people. Um, which is great development for Garrick as well, because obviously he's stuck trying to oppose the Dominion for the well-being of his people, but he's not saving Cardassians. Cardassians are dying because of the things he's doing. Yeah, good little episode. I like that one. Um, there's also... That's then followed by Take Me Out to the Holosuite, which is a very good episode featuring um, Cisco, who's always been a baseball fan, obviously, leading the entire crew um, as the Niners as they play a baseball game against a crew of Vulcans, um, captained by an old rival of Cisco's. That's a very good episode, one of the more enjoyable ones. There's a lot of... Um, there's a few episodes like Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite that are quite light this season. And I think that's because as we approach the end of the season, things will get quite intense. The major plot episode, though, um, for this for this episode is Treachery, Faith, and the Great River. Now, Treachery, Faith, and the Great River sees Wayun turn traitor and link up with Odo to seek asylum with the Federation. It turns out that the Wayun we've been seeing since season five has been killed, and this is Wayun's next clone. And he has turned on the Dominion. And it is revealed that the reason he has turned on the Dominion is because the founders are dying. They have a disease and it is affecting them. And as a result, he sees Odo as the only worthy founder in the quadrant and so has turned on the Dominion. However, a new Wayun has been activated, Wayun 7, I believe. Um, and there's a lot of clashing between Wayun, the new Wayun and Damar. It's kind of implied that Damar may have had Wayun 5 killed. Um but yeah, they're trying to stop Wayun 6 from making it back to the Federation to the point that they even threaten to destroy Odo's runabout um, if Wayun 6 doesn't kill himself, which he eventually does. Yeah, very, very emotional episode, that one. Very, very intri intriguing in terms of what it can mean going forward. 
also um, has a very good B plot that episode where um, O'Brien is just panicking um, because Nog keeps trading away parts of the station following what he calls the Ferengi principle of the Great River. Um, because the the station needs something, so it's like, well, he keeps, tra- you know, O'Brien gives Nog his tag so that Nog is able to use his Ferengi wiles to do some trading and bartering. And we have this, and they want that, and they'll give us this, but we don't need that. But we can, can then trade that for this, and so on. Very funny B story, um, and like I said, that B story is again one of the lighter moments in this this episode. Uh, in this season as well, and for the better, I think, and really shows Nog as an as an officer and what his Ferengi skills can bring to the Federation. Uh, and everything kind of resolves itself very, very well, much, you know, far better than it did before. Um, there's then an episode, uh, the Siege of AR five five eight. There's also Once More Unto the Breach, which re- uh, features the return of Kor and his eventual demise. That one's quite, uh, quite intriguing as well. There's a lot, some comedy in it, but quite emotional towards the end. But yeah, Siege of AR five five eight, which is uh, the crew of the Defiant, including Nog and Quark, end up stuck um, on the front lines helping a group of Federation soldiers on this embattled colony and while they're fighting against the Jem'Hadar, Nog loses his leg he ends up taking a, a severe injury and has to have his leg amputated it's a very dark twist for um, a character who like I said only a couple of episodes before this in Treachery Faith and the Great River was leading a comedy plotline very interesting um, there's then the episode Covenant, which features uh, Golducat, um, now leading a Parwraith worshipping cult of Bajorans on a sister station, Deep Space Nine, called Empok Nor, which is kind of on the fringes of uh, Cardassian space. And he brings Kira to him. Um, there was also a very dark episode um, in the last season, I believe, called Wrongs Darker Than Death or Night. Um, where it was revealed that Kira's mother had been one of Ducat's companion women during the occupation. That was a, a very, very dark episode. And so Ducat feels very drawn to Kira and very keen to manipulate her. It's like he wants her approval. Um, but of course she manages to like reveal things in the cult and that basically he's he's generated a cult of personality where like one of the women gives birth and she gives birth to a half Cardassian baby because obviously her husband isn't the father Ducat is and he tries to spin it as part of a it's like oh look at the power wraiths have blessed this child by making him resemble your emissary oh he's such a sleaze um then there's um, It's Only a Paper Moon. And It's Only a Paper Moon is quite possibly, I think, one of the most important episodes of Star Trek in terms of doing something different. Star Trek very often builds itself around a, you know, the episode will focus on one of the main cast. Um, and if there are guest characters, 
um, they will be supporting the main cast member. Um, most Star Trek episodes tend to feature an A story and a B story. Um, so the A story will fo- feature one group of characters. The B story will feature another group of characters. Um, sometimes, like with Treachery, Faith, and the Great River, the A story and B story are kind of uh, diametrically opposed, where it's like one is quite dark and quite intense and one is quite light. Um, sometimes they do kind of dovetail together. Um, you know, sometimes they're quite similar in tone. And most Star Trek episodes tend to follow that format or become an ensemble episode in the same way that the the first parts of season six were, where like all the cast were being used and a lot of the recurring cast members were being used. It's Only a Paper Moon does something very different, and it remains to this day an episode that I think is quite unique in Star Trek because it only really features an A story, and the A story doesn't feature any of the main cast members. The A story focuses on Nog and Vic Fontaine. Nog is the central character of this episode. He has returned from rehabilitation with an artificial leg and he's struggling and he chooses to rehabilitate inside Vic's hollow program. And, you know, he he uses his Ferengi wiles to help Vic balance his books of his casino and, and things like that. But as the episode goes on, Vic realizes that Nog isn't actually being helped, and he kind of cuts him off. And the episode ends with this impassioned speech um, from Nog, where he reveals that he's scared, he's terrified. You know, he he lost his leg, and you know it's the first time he's really been confronted with his own mortality, and what that could mean for his career and what it could mean for his future and his life. And it's a really kind of sad moment, to be honest. It's, yeah, it's a really powerful, emotional episode. And the conclusion is brilliant. Like, Aaron Eisenberg as Nog, I think, is... You know, I've said before, Nog is one of my favorite characters in this show. His the change that he goes through from the first episode emissary right through to the the final episode, what you leave behind, and the change in the character and the story he goes through is phenomenal. Um, Nog is probably one of the most dramatically different characters in terms of the journey he goes through. And I love it, <laughs> you know. Um, Aaron Eisenberg, who played Nog, um, passed away fairly recently, um, w- within the last couple of years, along with uh, Rene Aubergenois, who played Odo. And the two of them played phenomenal characters, and their performances as these characters live on. And, you know, there's a reason I talk about those characters quite a lot, and it's because they are two of the most memorable on this show. You know, the the only other character I think I probably talk about as much is Garrick, because, again, of the same sort of story that he's going through. Deep Space Nine, for me, and I think this episode really kind of shows it, and Nog really shows it, Deep Space Nine hones in 
on what makes these characters important and by giving us a a lasting location where things can keep coming back means that actual character changes stuck around and unlike the other shows at the time the next generation and voyager we saw proper ongoing development with these characters and i love it <laughs> i really really love it like there's so much that changes with these characters even characters that change very little like someone like jadzia or cisco they are very set as to who they are and they remain kind of constant in that throughout their growth um in the show like there's there's aspects of them that change like they become more confident or um cisco becomes more secure in his role as the emissary but he's still cisco cisco is the same very principled very um disciplined very forthright man at the start as he is at the end um jadzia is the same you know headstrong confident um powerful woman at the start as to when she dies um there's just elements of them that change but then there's other characters like odo and quark and garrick and um nog who go through real journeys in this show sorry not quark uh rom i probably meant to say there um quark again is more similar to to uh cisco and jadzia you know they they go through journeys in this show and evolve and change and it really works and you know it means that the characters grow and change throughout the seasons and you know nog appears in something like 40 odd episodes of deep space nine like aaron eisenberger's nog appears in 40 40 odd episodes as the character and some episodes he's his the only scene he's in is before the the credits you know he's in the cold open like there's an episode this season called chrysalis and he appears in the cold open and that's it um or far beyond the stars he's like a newspaper salesman inside the benny russell um situation and that's his only appearance um but yeah it's just he's always great to see and because he was a recurring character same same with garrick it feels like every time they brought him back it's because they had something for him to do and you know as much as he did stay around and become like a, an ongoing presence you know to the point that he could appear in other episodes and this is because star trek filmed like four or five episodes at once so you'd have like oh this actor's on set for this day because they're doing this well can we just borrow them and do them scene over here with them um and that stuff works really well you know because at the same time that he would have been filming chrysalis he also would have been filming treachery faith in the great river for example or take me out to the hollow suite you know so he would have been on set doing stuff uh same with martok martok appears in treachery faith in the great river and that would be because he was also on set filming once more onto the breach um you know so they link the characters all together like that it's, it's great i love it um but yeah it's only a paper moon one of my favorites one of the 
one of the best episodes and i think something that something that i've not seen many other shows do despite how successful it is it's very rare that you see a show take a gamble like that and have an entire episode anchored around a non-main character and i think it only works because of how well developed a character like nog already was so yeah i think it's a standout i think it's a triumph there are some other um good episodes before we get to the the final run um there's a field of fire which sees Esri kind of dealing with the the memories of Durandax, the kind of murderer one, um, while also hunting a serial killer on the station. Um, it's a good twist on that, and it turns out there's a, a Federation officer who's been um, sort of damaged by the war, psychologically damaged, and has started killing other officers. Um, there's an episode called Chimera where another changeling comes onto the station and meets with Odo and this other changeling is played by J.G. Hertzler who plays Martok um, so that was quite cool it's a changeling called Lars um, and then uh, Bada Bing Bada Bang where the crew end up doing like an Ocean's Eleven style heist on Vic's casino because Felix has written in a sort of fun thing where the casino ends up being taken over by mobsters essentially <laughs> and so they have to find a way to get rid of them but within the confines of the hollow program so we see the entire crew sort of coming together pretending to be like high rollers in the casino causing distractions uh picking safes things like that really clever um very silly um but again one of the lighter episodes because things are about to get very dark and, you know, a final one um, just before we hit the final stretch called Inter Armor Enem Silent Legis, which sees um, Sloan return to recruit Bashir for an investigation in the Romulan Empire, which sort of leads to uh, Kretak being outed and replaced as the Romulan representative to the Alliance um, because basically Section 31 is preparing for the fact that they may end up in a war with the Romulans afterwards. Um, so yeah, very interesting run of episodes. And there's probably all sorts of other episodes across the years that I haven't talked about as well. Um, like there's the episode Change of Heart in Season 6 um, which features uh is it season five or season six change of heart which is um yeah no it's season six uh jadzia ends up wounded behind the lines and wharf kind of sacrifices his mission objective to keep her alive and it damages his prospects of command um you know, the, and the, there's other bits, other revelations, like the fact that um, Cisco's mother may have been inhabited by a prophet, um, you know, to sort of engineer Cisco's birth. You know, which is, again, something that a lot of fans seem to uh, take umbrage at, like the idea that Cisco was kind of like preordained by gods. But there's been, always been in sorts of like powerful cosmic beings involved in Star Trek. That's always been a thing. Um, you know, immortals and phenomenally powerful entities meddling with the lives of mortals and 
so on. So, you know, I, your mileage may vary on it, but for me, it doesn't really bother me. But it's the idea, you know, things like the orb of the emissary, everything about the emissary and about Cisco's life and, you know, the reckoning and the 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 confrontation with the pirates, it's all been preordained. It's all been pre-planned. And it's been pre-planned because the prophets don't experience time linearly, as we learn in the very first episode, Emissary. So all that's going on. And then at the same time, we're also approaching the end of the Dominion War. There's more tension there that keeps going on. Things keep getting darker. And so we come into the final run of episodes, which were advertised with the name The Final Chapter. And it's basically the last nine episodes of the season. Um, So from episode 17 right up to the end, including the feature-length finale, What You Leave Behind. And this is where things get really interesting. So yes, Deep Space Nine came to an end with Series 7. And knowing that they were planning on ending it, they actually planned for the ending. And when I say planned for the ending, what I mean is they serialised the last nine, well, the last ten, really, if you count episode, uh, what you leave behind as, you know, the feature-length episode as parts one and two. The last ten episodes of the series are a a serialised story that end um, Deep Space Nine. And again, that's something very different. Um, You know, Deep Space Nine had always been a bit more serialised than the rest of Star Trek at the time. Not completely, but, you know, you would watch and there would be plot lines from previous episodes that would come up. Um, But obviously, unless you were watching, like, one of the specific two-parters or the six-parter at the start of Series 6, you wouldn't necessarily be aware that what you were watching was um, part of a connected story. And, you know, even then, they they very rarely had a, a last time on Star Trek Deep Space Nine unless it was an explicit two-parter. These final episodes are no exception, but they are very clearly designed, and they were marketed at the time as, like, Deep Space Nine, the final chapter, and they were marketed as the end of the story. And essentially what they do is over the course of these these 10 episodes, almost in like a three-act structure, they end the series. So the first part is the episode Penumbra, um, which reveals that Cisco is planning to marry Cassidy. I believe Cassidy has fallen pregnant by this point. And not only is he planning to marry her, he is planning he's bought a plot of land on Bajor um to build their house for them to live in. And you know, Cassidy's kind of encouraged by it. She, she's on board with the idea. Um Worf then goes missing behind the lines, however. And Esri, while sort of investigating his quarters and seeing the the bat left that Jadz left him feels quite a connection to Worf and is determined to kind of rescue him. So she goes behind the lines as well to try and find him. And they end up sort of stuck on this planet together, um, finding each other. um, And they do, I think, 
Um, they start annoying each other and arguing, um, but they do actually end up embracing, and I think they it's implied that they kind of um, are intimate with each other. But then they get discovered by the Breen and taken prisoner. Now, the Breen had barely been seen in Star Trek at this point. They actually debuted in Deep Space Nine. They uh, appeared in the episode Indiscretion. Um, they were the ones running the prison camp where uh, Dukat and Kira found Zial. Um, and, yeah, they get captured by the Breen. Uh, so Worf and Dax, uh, Worf and Ezri are stuck on this Breen ship. And they're like, well, why Why are they there? You know, the Federation aren't at war with the Breen. Why are the Breen in the, behind the Dominion lines, etc.? And, you know, there's all these these things going on and they're still trying to deal with their relationship and, and things like that. Because obviously then there's the whole thing about, you know, a symbiont rejoining with a previous host, which is something that Dax has dealt with before. Meanwhile, while all this is going on, the, um, Dukat returns to Damar on Cardassia. Because Dukat is now firmly a believer in the Parathes. And he wants Damar's help. And he gets Damar to have him surgically altered to be Bajoran. And because he needs to look Bajoran for a plan. Um, and yeah, that happens in this episode. He ends up being surgically altered to look Bajoran. Um, rather than Cardassian. And he's planning something, and Damar is intrigued, but we don't know what is really going on. But he also, Damar seems quite dismissive of the fact that Dukat believes in the Parathes. But, you know, he's he's got a sense of duty to his former commander to do this. And then finally, Sisko reveals a vision for the Prophets, where they urge him to accept his destiny as emissary. And the prophet that embodied his mother, Sarah, appears to him, saying that he must fulfil his destiny and walk his path alone, even without Cassidy. Um, and that his biggest trial is about to begin. And Cisco comes out just, like, filled with sorrow. Like, the idea that he can't be with Cassidy. So, yeah, the prophet's basically telling him not to get married. Um, to Cassidy. And yeah, that leads into death, till death do us part. Um, so agonizing over the vision. Um, Kai Wynn receiving a vision of her own, telling her that a guide will help her restore Bajor. And Ezri and Worf being interrogated, uh, by the Breen. Um, Basically, Dukat comes to Kai Wynn. Uh, so she receives this, this vision. Um, and Dukat basically manipulates her into believing that he is the guide sent to her by the prophets. Um, and she completely falls for his deception. You know? Um... So yeah, Dukat is manipulating Kai Wynn, and we're not quite sure as to what extent 
yet. Um, you know, and everything's going wrong. Worf um, and Esri are still clashing because also uh, Esri's also dealing with her feelings, not just for Worf, but also feelings for Bashir as well, who, you know, Jadzia had previously expressed interest in and who Esri had also expressed interest in. Um, and it's towards the end of the episode, while they're dealing with all this, well, you know, while they're locked in the prison cell, um, you know, Worf and Dax are, are beamed away and they arrive on a Jem'Hadar ship carrying Wayun and Damar because it turns out that the Breen have joined the Dominion with Wayun and the female founder and they've presented Worf and Dax as a gift to the Dominion and Wayun toasts their new alliance and obviously Worf and Ezra are stuck there kind of like, oh, what does this mean? But then meanwhile, at the same time, Cisco thinks to hell with the prophets and what they've warned him, and he marries Cassidy anyway. Um, but the, the prophets come to him again and, and warn him not to get married, and you know, saying that it will bring him nothing but sorrow because he's about to go through a, a difficult, difficult trial. But Cisco decides to do it anyway. And this leads into the third episode, which is Strange Bedfellows. So in Strange Bedfellows, um, Ezra and Worf get sentenced to death. Um, by the Breen, by the Dominion. But... Um, You know, and Ducat is continuing to manipulate Kai Wynn, um, warning her about the prophecy of the emissary straying from the course and things like this. It's, it's very clever. They they get closer. I think they end up getting um, romantically involved at some point as well. Um, and it's hard to tell how much of it is part of Mars manipulation, uh, Ducat's manipulation. Sorry. Um, Damar, meanwhile, is struggling. We see him continually turning to drink. Like, this is something that's been seen throughout the episodes previously, is that Damar likes a drink. And he's relying more and more on drinking, like, to the point that Wayun is commenting on it. Um, and Wayun 7 has been killed by this point. Um you know, Worf kills him, Worf snaps his neck. Um, so then Wayne 8 comes in. Um, and Damar was just laughing um at the whole at the whole thing. But yeah. It's Damar is struggling with the place of Cardassia in everything. And, you know, the the Breen have now come in and they're kind of, the Breen are now the Dominion's favoured pets in the way that the Cardassians used to be. And he feels that the Cardassians are being sidelined. And, 
yeah, he gets to a point where he throws the liquor away in disgust, like throws it at his own reflection, like angry at himself in sort of a, a nice reflection and counterpart of what Kira went through earlier when the station was occupied. Um, and Damar is, is changing as well. Meanwhile, Kai Wynn um, wants to consult with the orb, um, but the prophets don't speak to her. And this is where Dukat, in his guise as Anjol, um, reveals that he's a servant of the Power Wraiths and that he's been brought to the Kai for a purpose to unite against the emissary and the prophets. And she is aghast at the deception and throws him out. And Dukat tells her that all the prophets have ever done is reject her, while the Power Wraiths are offering her everything she's ever dreamed of. And it's revealed that she's never, ever been communicated to by the actual prophets. Um... And, yeah, it gives Kaiwin a proper crisis of faith. And, you know, she sort of pleads with Kira, and Kira advises her to step down as Kai because it was her quest for power that led Kaiwin away from the prophets. But Wynne is completely unwilling to give up the political power that her position gives her, saying that Bajor needs her. And she's deluding herself. It's it's very interesting. There's a lot of plot threads going on throughout these episodes. Um, the stuff with Worf and, and Esri being prisoners of the Breen, it does kind of take a while with, with nothing really happening. And they only get a stay of execution in this episode because Damar saves them. Like, he saves them right at the end and tells them to convey a message to the Federation. He says they have an ally on Cardassia, which is him. It's his first act of open defiance against the Dominion. Um, and yeah. But the... the you know, Wayun is angry at this, at the fact they've escaped and like wants to know what happened. And Damar says, I have no idea. And... Um, Wayne's like, fine, well, I'll replace all the guards with Jem'Hadar. No Cardassian guards. Um, so, yeah, it's very dark, very interesting. There's a lot of good, good things happening here. And then that leads to the changing face of evil. The changing face of evil is the first major attack, major, uh, major engagement between the Breen and the Federation Alliance. Um, the Chintoka system that they captured at the end of the last system gets attacked by a Dominion and Breen fleet. And uh, the Breen also, uh, in declaring their allyship with the Dominion, attack Earth. They manage to launch an attack on Earth which attacks Starfleet headquarters in San Francisco. Um, and the fleet that attacks the Chintoka system is able, the Breen have an energy weapon that is able to destroy Federation, Romulan, and Klingon ships, including the Defiant. The Defiant ends up being destroyed in this episode. Um, Damar also starts planning his rebellion and makes like his first 
you know, first attacks against um, against the Dominion. He reveals that, um, you know, he, he puts a political message out, um, you know, as the the crew arrive on Deep Space Nine in the aftermath of losing the Defiant with uh, Admiral Ross. He's, he's saying that time is one thing they don't have. You know, if the Dominion launches in another uh, offensive, they're going to be unable to defend it. They're going to be able to stop them. But that's when Kira interrupts them and says, look, DeMar's broadcasting a message across the galaxy. And he says that Cardassia has loyally fought for the Dominion for two years, and they've lost seven million soldiers in the process. And in the return, the Dominion has ceded their territories to the Breen and usurped control of their homeworld. He says, our allies have conquered us without firing a single shot. And he declares a rebellion, saying that his men have just attacked and destroyed a cloning facility, and calls on all the Cardassians to rise up against the Dominion. It's amazing it's a brilliant twist um and a great way of launching like the second act of this whole thing you know um you know with a very definite change of like damar is a good a good guy now and he's on our side and so of course starfleet then tries to reinforce him which leads to the episode when it rains they send uh kira odo and garrick to aid his rebellion and Kira tries to teach him the ways of the Bajoran resistance. But, you know, this is also when Bashir finds out that Odo is in fact infected with the disease that's threatening the founders. The female changeling has been showing symptoms of the disease, which is something that Damar has noticed before all of this as well. Um, so, yeah, it's it's very interesting. And at the same time, Kai Wynn starts um, investigating the the Parath texts and learning more and more about them. Um, you know, the most of Damar's original resistance ends up getting attacked. Damar's family end up being killed, which um, leads to a lot of dark moments there where, where Kira kind of calls him out on the sort of people that do that. Um, Alron arrives on the station um, because Martok's ship, the Rataran, was actually able to survive the Breen Energy Weapon due to changes that it had made on its warp core recently. And so um, the Klingons are now leading the brunt of the defense um, because the Klingon ships can all be easily modified to um, protect against that weapon. Um but yeah, Gowron kind of muscles his way into the station and he is taking command of the war effort. Um, and it's because he's essentially seeking the glory that Martok is has been getting. You know. Um, and yeah, Bashir learns that, you know, <clears throat> Odo's infected with this disease. But not only that, he realises that Odo would have been infected when he went to Earth in season four. Um, and that he was probably infected by section 31. And that Odo would have then passed the disease onto the Great Link um, during the episode Broken Link, where obviously he was um, made solid. So it's all been this ongoing plan by section 31. So, of course, Bashir finds realizes it's section 31 involved 
because he gets given the wrong data from Starfleet Medical when trying to investigate, and he realizes that Section 31 would be the one involved in doing it. So he gets O'Brien to help him kind of solve solve the issue, solve the problem. So yeah, there's all of that going on as well. There's so much happening <laughs> across these these episodes uh and yeah Bashir realizes that section 31 created the virus they must also have a, cl- a cure and that they have to try and get it so episode six tacking into the wind um Gowron begins leading more and more reckless attacks against the dominion which causes more and more problems for the Cardassians. um uh, not for the Cardassians, for the Klingons. Kira and the Cardassians uh, on the Resistance are plotting to steal a Breen weapon. And, you know, they're trying to catch the energy um, dampening weapon. Uh, Kira clashes with one of um, Ducat's assistants, Gold Roussot, um, and Garrick suggests that she should just kill him um, to get rid of him before he kills her. Meanwhile, um, Auron obviously keeps leading Klingons to disaster. So Worf and Martok, like Worf realizes that Gowron must be opposed with this and ends up challenging um, Auron to a fight, to like an honor duel. And the two of them prepare for a fight to the death. And they actually clash, they cross blades. Um, and Worf ends up winning. He kills Gowron. Um, and they start to declare Worf Chancellor. And he says, no, I, I am not the man to lead the Empire. Um, all I've done is help usher in a new era of honour and dignity for the Klingons. And he makes Martok Chancellor. And Martok says that, I have never sought the leadership. And Worf reminds him that Kaelas said, great men do not seek power. They have power thrust upon them. And so, yeah, Martok becomes Chancellor of the Klingon Empire. Um, Odo, meanwhile, because obviously he's having to use his uh, shape-shifting abilities, um, you know, behind the lines... Um, to help the Cardassian resistance, his condition is getting worse. The more he shapeshifts, the more symptoms he's experiencing. And obviously he's shapeshifting a lot behind the lines. And yeah, it's it's incredible. There's some really, really good stuff. So much so much drama and like his condition is accelerating really quickly. Um, through narrative convenience, but it's like everything needs to come together. And these episodes are packed. You know, there's all these new elements that they're introducing, but obviously all these other things that they're addressing as well, like the idea of Kira now having to help the Cardassians, which is showing a different side to her as well. It's absolutely fantastic. You know, um, Bashir and O'Brien lure Sloan onto the station. They end up going inside his mind to try and get the cure. Odo ends up coming back to the station because he's he's dying. Um, 
and obviously needs help. But they manage to get the cure from inside Sloane's head, and they manage to cure him. Uh, you know, the the resistance ends up being attacked, and a lot of them end up being uh, killed. Um, the final episode, dog, uh, the penultimate episode, sorry, Dogs of War, um, sees the resistance on the back foot because most of them have been have been killed. Um, you know, because they get uh, contacted by a gull who then betrays them. Um, and so, you know, Damar, Garrick, and Kira are kind of left on their own on Cardassia Prime, um, struggling to find safety. Zek gets in touch with uh, Quark and says that he's making him the leader of the... Well, in a, in a garbled transmission, says he's making him Grand Nagus. So that then leads to Brunt returning, which means that in this episode you get Jeffrey Coombs playing Brunt and Wayoon, which is a lot of fun. Um, so, but it turns out that no, he's not actually trying to make Quark Grand Nagus, he's trying to make Rom Grand Nagus, which that confusion gets cleared up right at the end. Um, Ducart comes back to um, Kai Win at some point as well and sort of helps helps with him uh cassidy ends up pregnant um and she says that you know because of the prophet's warning she's really nervous um but obviously they're happy they're gonna have a baby and then we get the you know bashir and esri end up together um as well so many great moments and then we get the final two-parter uh the the, the feature-length finale which is what you leave behind which sees the final confrontation, the final battle of the Dominion War. Um, you know, the the invasion of Cardassia, all the Cardassian fleet have kind of pulled back um, to Cardassia Prime. They lead the full invasion. There's the massive space battle. Um, things go wrong. Like, Damar <laughs> has led... Leads and manages to lead an attack on his own and manages to inspire like a, a little small scale rebellion in the previous episode, which then leads to uh, sabotage on a Dominion facility. And so, as a result, Wayun orders one of the Cardassian cities to be destroyed, which kills something like three million people. Um, and he broadcasts this planet wide. But not only does he broadcast it planet-wide, he broadcasts it to the fleet in orbit. So the Cardassians in the fleet learn that the Dominion has just destroyed one of their cities. All of the Cardassians instantly turn on the Dominion. Like, the Cardassian fleet in orbit changes sides, joins the Federation Klingons and Romulans, attacking the Dominion. And they push back to Cardassia Prime, and it causes the founder to to just declare, kill them all, wipe them all out. So the Dominion start a systematic extermination of the Cardassian people on the Founder's orders. You know, Odo tries to reach her. They manage to break into the Dominion headquarters um, with the help of Kira, Damar, Garrick. Damar ends up dying as a result um, of trying to trying to lead the soldiers into the breach. She ends up getting shot dead. And just says, you know, for Cardassia. Um, 
and you know they take up his charge and rush in. Odo beams down because he wants to bring an end to the fighting, and he links with the female changeling and gives her the cure which he's been given. Links with her. But in the brief moment of their link, obviously, because the link merges them on every level, um, they're able to interact completely and explain everything. And in doing that, that's where Odo is able to basically negotiate her surrender. Um, So the Dominion immediately surrender. And it's a bittersweet ending because of how much the Cardassians have lost. But the war is over. Like a peace treaty is signed. The female founder is arrested. She's the the main prisoner. Um, the Breen, the Dominion, the Cardassians. You know, the Dominion leave Cardassia's space. The Breen return to their own space. Everything's over, but not quite. Because while all this has been happening, Kai Win and Dukat go to the fire caves on Bajor with a plan to release the Par Wraiths. Something that threatens the safety not only of the Bajor itself, but of the entire Alpha Quadrant. And it turns out that this, not anything else, this is the thing that the prophets were warning against. Because Cisco has to go and oppose Dukat in the in the fire caves and has to to join with him and fight you know, fight Dukat and Dukat manages to to kill Kai Win. Um Dukat manages to like tackle Dukat, take him into the fire caves and trap the Par Wraiths and both of their physical forms inside the fire caves. So the Par Wraiths are defeated, but Cisco is gone. And Cisco goes to Cassidy and reveals that he's in the wormhole with the prophets. And he'll be back, but he doesn't know when. And with that, the series ends, and the cast all go their separate ways. You know, O'Brien takes a teaching position at Starfleet Academy uh, and leaves. Worf goes to join Martok as Klingon ambassador and leaves. You know, everything changes. Nog gets a promotion as well, becomes lieutenant, one of Cisco's final acts. And then the final shot is Jake looking out at the wormhole with Kira. You know, just looking out the window of Deep Space Nine. It's a very sad, very bittersweet ending. Action-packed and brilliant, but with a lot of tragedy. I think Deep Space Nine is a masterpiece it's not perfect there are flaws in it there are some episodes that are just pure filler and there's some episodes especially early on like move along home um which can be derided just for being a bit silly and then there's episodes like profit and lace um which just have not held up very well but for how much pure good there is in this show and for how much it does different i think it's an incredible watch and i think if you only watch a single star trek show even if you're not a star trek fan i think deep space nine is the show i would recommend because it feels so much more modern 
in a lot of ways than most of the other Star Trek shows of its time do. Um, you know, Deep Space Nine aired during a, an 18 year run of Star Trek on television between sort of like 1987 and uh, 2004, I think it was, when Enterprise finally finished, um, where you had the next generation. Uh, the last two seasons of Next Generation aired with the first two of Deep Space Nine. Then Voyager took over when TNG ended. Um, first five seasons of Voyager ran alongside the f- last five seasons of Deep Space Nine. And then um, you had Enterprise run for four years after Voyager ended. It was a an uninterrupted break of Star Trek on television. And that particular era of Star Trek, the Rick Berman era of Star Trek, um, has a lot of faults but it does a lot of things very well and deep space nine i think is the pinnacle of what it does well the the serialized storytelling the realistic approach to characters and conflict and you know it changes and redefines so much of what star trek was accepted to be in the pop zeitgeist at the time you know so much of what deep space nine tries to do feels at once a uh, a commentary and a clash on what the next generation was doing you know a response to what the next generation was doing the next generation would feature you know most next generation episodes would start in a particular way and it would be the enterprise warping in a captain's log telling you um you know what's going on what the what the, the mission of the week is why the enterprise is at this particular planet um and then incidents would take place and for the most part like there are exceptions there are some recurring plot lines like a lot of the klingon plot lines with wharf but for the most part the events of one episode would hardly ever be commented on again. You know, at the end of the episode, the situation would be concluded, the Enterprise would warp off, boldly going to its next mission. And things would never be spoken of again. And even if there were character changes, they were rare. You know, those characters, the the characters in The Next Generation, don't get me wrong, I love them, but they are very well defined and they do not change much. They do not really evolve. Next Generation is very static in a lot of ways. And it mines those characters very well for drama. Um, You know, seasons five and six, especially of The Next Generation, I think are very, very good. But it's it has a lot of flaws because there's not a lot of changes. And Voyager was better at that. But again, Voyager was the same. Not a lot changed. The characters remained fairly static. You cannot say that with Deep Space Nine. With Deep Space Nine, these characters change and evolve in a way that is very similar to that in a lot of modern shows. Things that came afterwards. Some things that were deliberately inspired by Deep Space Nine. One of the prominent examples I can think of is Ronald D. Moore's Battlestar Galactica, which I do want to talk about in a future episode. Battlestar Galactica, um, you know, Ronald D. Moore created that and the, the storytelling that he wanted to tell on that because he tried to apply the storytelling lessons he'd learned from Deep Space Nine because he was one of the more prominent writers on Deep Space Nine. He tried to apply the lessons he'd learned there to 
um, Star Trek Voyager when he joined that show and got told, no, you can't do that. He got told by Rick Berman and Brian and Braga, the, the producers of Star Trek Voyager, you can't do that. You can't have those sort of ongoing plots and ongoing character stories. And he got very annoyed with that and went off and made Battlestar Galactica instead. Um, and Battlestar Galactica launched in 2003, 2004, picking up off the back of Enterprise. Enterprise had tried to do some of the similar things. Like season three of Enterprise is a full serialized story um, with the Enterprise chasing down, um, you know, an alien race called the Zindi. And season four of Enterprise is every episode is part of a larger whole. There's two to three episode story arcs um, throughout the entire season. And that is, that is what Deep Space Nine brought, not just to Star Trek, but to television. Because off the back of things like Battlestar Galactica and, and around that sort of time, you started getting things like Lost and Heroes and how that's led into the modern day with things like Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones. The whole idea of serialized storytelling that came about. And as a result, I think Deep Space Nine holds up remarkably well. Like, this is a show that works if you binge it. This is a show that works if you were to sit down and watch you know, a few episodes at a time or or work your way through a season across a couple of weeks. Because you are rewarded for being a regular a regular viewer of this show in a way that most other shows at the time, and especially most Star Trek shows, didn't do. And I think it's quite telling that a lot of the modern Star Trek has approached this same, uh, this same style of storytelling. You know, I've spoken about Strange New Worlds and Discovery. Discovery features more season-long arcs in the way of a more modern show, whereas Strange New Worlds does more episodic storytelling. But the character arcs are there for both of them. You know, both of these shows have long-running character arcs where the characters change and evolve and de develop across the series in the same way as the ones on Deep Space Nine. And like I said, Deep Space Nine is incredible for this and what it did and how it develops these characters. You know, characters like Nog and Garrick and Odo. You know, Odo ends up back with his people at the end of the, the show. He goes back to the Great Link to, to cure them and to leave the people. Something he's been wanting since the start. And it's an, it feels earned. It feels like a natural progression, a natural end to his arc as a character. You know, the crew of The Next Generation don't separate at the end of the final episode because they went off to do the movies. You know, and even with the modern storytelling of, of like Star Trek Picard, they come back together. You know, Voyager, the crew didn't really separate at the end. They just arrived home. And it's like, was Voyager planned for movies? Quite possibly. Um but then, of course, Star Trek X came out and was a bit of a disaster. Deep Space Nine was never going to get that treatment. And so it ends conclusively by splitting the cast off. And it's bold. And I really like it. And I respect so much of what it is. And like I said, the when it is on form, it is 
telling some of the best stories I have ever seen with these characters. Emotional, heartfelt stories about the human condition, about um, tragedy and war and racism and love and so much more going on. There are episodes of Deep Space Nine that make me weep with these impassioned speeches from the characters, you know, or, or pivotal emotional moments. You know, episodes like Rejoined, It's Only a Paper Moon, Heart of Stone, um, The Visitor, Far Beyond the Stars. They are up there as some of my favourite episodes in all of fiction because of what they do. And they all come from this series. So, yeah. Deep Space Nine, if you have even a passing interest in Star Trek, if you like... um, the storytelling behind shows like Strange New Worlds or The Orville as well. That's another really good example of something that's, you know, while clearly inspired by Next Generation, has also learned a lot of lessons from Deep Space Nine, you know, in terms of its approach to characters and character development. I really recommend Deep Space Nine. And, you know, thanks to Paramount Plus, it's easily available. You know, if you want, I can give you a list of all the best episodes. But your best bet is just start with Emissary and go from there. Even if some of the rough ones in season one, just stick with it. Work with it. It gets better and it leads to something incredible. And it's an experience that I heartily recommend to everyone. So if you've made it all the way through this episode, I just want to say thank you for sticking with it. It was Deep Space Nine is one I've been wanting to talk about for a while, um, like in isolation from the rest of Star Trek, um, just because of my thoughts on it. So thank you for indulging me. Thank you for listening. I'm glad I've said a lot of the things that I have about this show, and I hope I've convinced someone out there who maybe hasn't tried it to give it a go. Um, Like I said, I do not think you will be disappointed at all. Now, I I will say as well, if you have also seen, um, once once you have Deep Space Nine, if you can get hold of the... um, the documentary what we left behind as well that works as a very great coda to the show it was a documentary released a few years ago by Ira Stephen Bear where he basically interviewed all the cast uh, over the period of a couple of years and got their thoughts on things um, and also brought together the writing team again to kind of sketch out a preliminary idea for a season eight, like what the first episode of a season eight could look like uh, 25 years later. Very good little um, little documentary um, with some amazing heartfelt moments and a lot of um, HD restoration on some of the footage, including some of the battle footage and some of the more emotional moments from the show. Um, it's about 20... 20 minutes all told of HD footage uh, and for the most part it looks absolutely incredible Um, so yeah I highly recommend that if you can Um, but yeah it's like I said it's one of my favourite shows Um, 
it's always been one of my favorite star trek shows and it remains one of my favorite shows i've ever seen it's it's one of my comfort shows i go back and watch episodes of deep space nine there are scenes i can quote almost verbatim i've watched them that much there are episodes i know by name or by scene uh, you know you could show me a screenshot from some episodes and i could probably guess what episode it is um yeah it's great and yeah it's it's definitely worth watching definitely worth enjoying so if you haven't please go and watch it i recommend it if not um hopefully you've enjoyed this podcast until next time my friends you all look after yourselves treat yourself with kindness look after your physical and mental health as best as you can i know i've been suffering with mine recently um i have more episodes like this coming up very soon um you know deep dives of of different topics um but i think this is the last time i'm going to touch um star trek in this much depth for a while um in fact after this and the discussion of some of the recent shows i think i've pretty much covered everything i want to say about star trek for a while um so we'll see <laughs> but yeah i think i've got another star trek episode planned talking about picard um but yeah until next time you take care of yourselves bye my friends Thank you, my friends, for once again joining me on Gardo Goes Geek. Your continued support for this podcast means the absolute world to me, and I am grateful for every single one of you who stays and listens to one of my episodes. It means the absolute world. Now, if you would like to engage more with me or the podcast, we have a Discord community, small but growing, and... And we now have commissions open on Ko-Fi. So if there's a topic you would like to see me cover, you can pay me to cover it. All funds will be used for legal purchase of the relevant items where I do not have them. Have a look on the link tree for more information. Until next time, look after yourselves.